All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is December 8th, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking with Mike Murphy, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? South Bend, Indiana, February 16th, 1957. Okay, and uh, what were your parents' names? Uh, James Murphy, mm -hmm. a native of Indianapolis, and Barbara Lill, L-I-L-L, -L, native of Fort Wayne. Okay. When did your family first get to Indiana? The earliest, um, well, first of all, half Irish and half German, almost okay. straight down the line. And okay. so the first um, evidence we have, hard evidence we have, is the O'Connell side of the family, one-fourth of the Irish side. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have a, my uncle has a family Bible that says this Bible belongs to Thomas O'Connell, Farmland, Indiana, 1850. Wow. So it, Farmland, Indiana is a little town near the Ohio border. I've never been there. But, mm -hmm. um, and then they eventually, that part of the family moved to um, what is now Lawrence in Marion County, but back then was called Lanesville. Mm, okay. And my understanding is they made them change the name because there was already a Lanesville down in Harrison County. <laughs> they didn't want the post office confusion or whatever. All right. So they bought one of the original lots in what is now now Lawrence out, out near Geist. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually they were, most of them were, were Irish um, um, railroad workers. Mm -hmm. And so there's an area of Indianapolis it's not a hill, but it's called Irish Hill. Mm -hmm. On East Georgia Street, where all the railroads all kind of cross okay. and all that, you, you can see this. Where it, the, the core of Irish Hill is like Georgia and State Street. Yeah, okay. And they, they, they all live there. Um, and my great-great, maybe great-great-grandmother um, owned a boarding house for single Irish men hmm. on East Georgia Street, right where the state, the Farm Bureau headquarters is now, just east of East Street. That's interesting. Yeah. And so they eventually, as you know, it's like the Jeffersons moving on up, you know, eventually they moved east into Irvington. Yeah. Um, where there were, you know, nicer homes, nicer whatever. And my, you know, my dad lived in Irvington from when he was born to when he went off to Notre Dame. Wow, okay. And so, anyhow, yeah. but so there's, so the four Irish names are Murphy, Lynch, O'Connell, and McGinnis. Mm -hmm. And then on the German side is Lil, L-I-L-L, Wessel, Graf, and I'll think of the fourth one in a minute. Oh, Richland. Mm, okay. So, interesting. Four. All right. Yeah, anyhow. That's cool. Now, what were your parents' occupations? Um, my mom never went to college. She was a son, daughter of a doctor that had 14 kids. Wow. And next door to them was a family, the Oberfeld family, and they had 13. They had 27 kids between two houses. Hmm. Pretty typical German Catholic family back then. <laughs> um, she did not go to college because she got ruptured appendix and they thought she was going to die. And so wow. she missed the, the window, so to speak. So she went to like a two-year business college in Fort Wayne or something like that. Okay. And then um, was like a bookkeeper, but when ever since she got married, she was a stay-at-home mom. Mm. And eventually, okay. in her late 50s, became a suit salesperson at Hudson's in the mall in Mishawaka. Oh, okay. But, um, and then my dad um, went to Notre Dame, left Notre Dame to go to World War II, was joined the Army Air Force, 
Um, got very lucky because he was a waste gunner and a radio guy on a B-17 bomber, which was, frankly, almost certain death. Mm-hmm. And he, they were waiting to go maybe North Africa to bomb and um, took a test and came in first place, and they sent him to Yuma, Arizona for the rest of the war to be mm. an instructor. Wow, okay. And uh, then he, after that, came back and finished in Notre Dame, graduated in 47, went to... Northwestern for journalism grad school and um, never actually finished his master's degree because he got the job he wanted. He worked for ABC News Mm -hmm. in the radio division and had a fun few years. He, He helped produce the first nationally uh nationally broadcast um election returns in 1948 at the Chicago Lyric Opera House. And they, mm. it was the first time they connected the two pipes, so to speak, wow. to bring the East Coast feed and the West Coast feed together. And then he was a producer for the Paul Harvey Show, which you probably know what the Paul Harvey Show was. I, I think I've heard of it. He was one of the first... He was... Um, he was one of the first commentator, talk show kind of guys, and he would mix in commercials with his news and all that, and, and very opinionated, very conservative guy. And he's, I think his son does it now, maybe. But anyhow, this is late 40s, early 50s. Then my dad came here back to Indianapolis briefly and was the public relations guy for the national headquarters of the American Legion, which was just getting big because of all the World War II guys joining. And then he took a job at Notre Dame in fall of 52 and kind of started their public relations operation there, and it was there for 40 years. Wow. So, anyhow, <coughs> retired in 91. Yeah, okay. So that's, yeah, that's a pretty interesting career then. Um, how would you describe your childhood? Um, I'd describe it as pretty standard middle class. Mm-hmm. We had you know, we had six kids, um, Catholic schools, I went to Santhi's grade school, St. Joe High School, Notre Dame, so it was pretty pretty pre-planned, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived six blocks south of campus, walking distance, and I think that because, well, we, we had some perks because my dad worked at Notre Dame that other families did not get. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the campus was like a country club. Okay. For me, I mean, you walk had one major street to cross, and you had basketball courts and two lakes and a <laughs> golf course yeah. and all that. Yeah, you know, it was just in the summertime was great when there were no students around. But um, so, I mean, academia did not pay well back then, mm-hmm. and so we never, you know, we had one car for eight people. You know, we didn't have a garage. We had no air conditioning in the house. We didn't have a color TV, and I watched the moon launch. The moon landing on a little 16-inch black and white TV. Right, right. We, we didn't have a color TV or air conditioning until 1976. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but but there are other perks. The other the greatest perk was, I guess, that when you um, if you if your one of your parents worked at Notre Dame and you could get the grades and the SAT scores to get in, you went there completely free. Mm. And if you went to another school anywhere in the country at the time. Notre Dame would pay a thousand dollars a year of your tuition to go to any other school in the country. Well, back then, like Ball State was sixteen hundred dollars a year, and yeah. Notre Dame paid two thirds of it. So all six of us kids ended up with degrees from Notre Dame, 
fact, I, the only other school I applied to was Hawaii just because they had cool brochures. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because I knew I was going to Notre Dame. Yeah, right? yeah. And every, when I was in grade school, every quarter when we get our little Catholic school report cards, we'd all line up, and my dad would tell us whether that was good enough to get into Notre Dame or not. It was the standard. Wow, okay. It was assumed we were going there, or we, we probably couldn't afford to go to college, frankly. Yeah. And so, um, so five of the six of us got bachelor's degrees there. My one brother was there one year and quit, went to Ball State because he didn't like it, but then came back and went to finish and did law school there. Mm, okay. So, yeah, so Notre Dame was... That's everything for your family then, I guess. It was it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had, I was a... In high school, I was a messenger boy for the ticket office, had a pass that could get me into the locker rooms and the press box on the field, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I My senior... Well, my brother Pete... Uh, there's a guy, I don't know if you know the story about this, the, the movie Rudy and the guy that... Yeah. Okay, well, so my brother Pete was his roommate the year he became famous. Oh, wow. In the basketball arena. They didn't live in the stadium like this, the movie says. Right. But I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but he lived in the basketball arena with Rudy. And Rudy was a friend of the family, hung out at the house all the time. And my senior year, well, my senior year, I lived in the same room. And, they, and the, we call it the ACC. Now it's called... The, or sell pavilion or something like that but um, and I lived there free and it's because I knew the guy who owned the building or ran the building I should say and I called him and said hey is that room reserved for next year no you want it yeah sure well pick a roommate you know and I got this friend of mine who's the son of a physics professor and we lived there you know for the senior year I mean backstage for rock concerts I got to work on all the stage crews wow. I could use all the facilities you know, for free, yeah. running there at night, racquetball. Um, I was in the Notre Dame boxing team for four years, and so I never even had to li- leave the building oh my because we practiced in the building. Yeah. And I got free, all the free workout gear, towels, all that. I mean, That's a pretty... It was, it was a pretty good perk. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it was a pretty good perk. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so, so I always tell people, if you want to understand my life, there's two things you have to not not appreciate, but at least understand. And one is history, because I'm like a history f- crazy fool. Mm-hmm. Um, and Notre Dame, if you if you understand, at least can put up with those two angles, you know, then you you can understand a lot about me. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, let's see. So, what did you know about your family's political beliefs growing up? Zero. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, my mom and dad, um, I, you know, in fact, when my dad died in 2002 and I did the eulogy, I said, I never knew whether he was Democrat or Republican. He said, figure it out for yourself. Hmm. I can guess, coming from a blue-collar Irish family in Irvington, that he was a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of his family is all Democrat. They were, very, they were very proud of being involved in some of the first national union sit-down strikes in South Bend okay. and things like that. Yeah. And so... So they were they were very proud of that history, and then my mom told me that her dad was a big FDR Democrat until he decided to run for a third term, and he didn't think anybody should have a third term, and so he switched and became a Republican. Hmm. So knowing how much you know, how much she held her dad, put her dad on a pedestal, I assume she probably had Republican views. But it's, again, they told us to figure your own, figure out your own path. That's and so so my brothers and sisters. 
well, I have a brother that worked for two different Republican administrations in the White House, and now he's big-time lobbyist. Mm -hmm. And then I have another brother who's kind of a crazy right-wing Trumper. Okay. You know, <laughs> and which I'm not. I'm a never-Trumper. Um, and then my other three siblings, probably more independent, they kind of go back and forth, mm -hmm. you know, Republican and Democrat. I mean, they probably voted for Bush, wouldn't, but never would have voted for Trump. Mm, kind of thing. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting time politically for a lot of families. I think yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. um, so, how did your awareness of politics change in college, or did it change at all? Oh, it changed a lot. Okay. So, so when I was a, my first involvement in politics was as a little kid. There's a neighborhood called McKinley Terrace in South Bend. It's a lot of starter houses a lot of, built right after World War II. A lot of families with six kids and mm -hmm. two bedrooms or in bunk beds kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And um, the first political memory, the first, well, the first political involvement was um, going door to door, literally pulling a wagon, handing out brochures for a city councilman who everybody South Bend was a Democrat so his name was uh, Roger Parent and he represented the 4th district of South Bend on the city council now my first memory of politics is um, I remember I was, believe it or not when I was 3 years old sitting on the hood of a car in South Bend watching Eisenhower go by in May of 1960 wow. sitting with my aunt and what a big deal that was to see the president going by mm -hmm. um, and then um, the first book I really owned was Profile and Courage Profiles and Courage and my dad gave it to me when I was 7 years old and, and I literally would read books like 7 hours a day Wow. And they were always history books. Wow. And so I still have that book. I, it's, that's impressive. It's, it's, on my, it's, on my, uh, it's on my shelf. I probably have, I don't know, 1,500 history hardcovers on my shelves in my house. And mm -hmm. so That's but, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Anyhow, so, so then my second involvement in politics was when I was probably 17 or 18. One of my best friends... In South Bend, her name was Fran Nemeth, and her dad was a judge, and her brother uh, may have been a city council member, but he, Pete Nemeth, and he ran for mayor against the, he was a Democrat, and beat the Democrat incumbent, Jerry Miller, two to one. Hmm. And I had my driver's license, and they had me, they gave me some big old Cadillac, and I drove around and picked old ladies up and took them to vote. And I thought that was so cool. <laughs> But in college, you asked about college, you know, I was more into, I would go see anybody, you know, so Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, um, you know, when the IRA came to town, you know, to talk, I went and listened to them, so I was more into absorbing as much as I could. I planned to be a reporter, mm, okay. and so I majored in American Studies because Notre Dame doesn't have a uh, grad, a, a journalism degree. I think they do now. I think they went back to it, but they had gotten rid of it. And so I tried to get a really broad education in Notre Dame. So I, I mean, I mean, of course you have to take theology and philosophy in Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. But, but um, you know, I took economics and accounting and astronomy, and I took all kinds of courses to try to give myself a pretty broad, um, you know, grounding in what I thought I would be someday covering as a reporter. Yeah. So. Um, 
I ended up voting for Carter, though. My first chance to vote for president, I voted mm -hmm. for Carter. And, um, and then by 1980, I soured on Carter and voted for Reagan. Yeah. So. Interesting. Okay. And did your family ever, like, comment on your political development at all? Or did they just kind of, or pretty, didn't touch it at all? Or did you have conversations with them about your political development? My dad was, my dad was very proud of my involvement. Now, so, and my mom, when I decided to go into politics, said, um, she was afraid I'd lose my soul mm, okay. by being involved in politics because she thought it was inevitably corrupt. Mm -hmm. And um, so I spent, right out of college, I spent the first eight years or so as a television reporter. And I worked in six Midwestern states, but almost all of them were border markets. Mm -hmm. So I, I covered politics in Illinois, Missouri, and in Iowa, all based out of one town, Quincy, Illinois, which is right where the, the juncture of those three states is there along the Mississippi. And then I covered Indiana and Kentucky because I worked in, in the Evansville TV market, but the TV station was across the river in Henderson. So okay. I covered those two states. And then I worked, uh, the last stop was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the NBC affiliate there. And I was their, their political reporter for four and a half years or so. Interesting. Okay. So wow. I went. I covered political conventions. You know, I, you know, did everything. And I think that's probably what led me more to being a Republican, because the people I admired in politics were Republican. Okay. There was a congressman named Paul Henry who died very young at the age of fifty-one of a brain tumor, but he was like real up and comer in Congress. In in Western Michigan, I mean. There were no Democrats in office west of Lansing except for one guy who was a state rep. His name was Tom Matthew, and he was a West Side Grand Rapids Union official. Mm -hmm. You know, but everybody else were you know conservative Republicans. Okay. And I think it probably kind of you know affected me um, or impressed me maybe. And uh, then in nineteen, I was looking forward to nineteen eighty-eight, trying to figure out what I'm, what am I going to be doing for the election year in eighty-eight. And I actually thought of going. I actually thought of going to work for um, one of the networks, not as the correspondent you would see on there, but one of the background reporters, you know. Yeah. And I ran into a friend of mine who had played recreational soccer in college with his name was Joe Zakas he was a state senator from South Bend and I ran into him at my old girlfriend's wedding in South Bend <laughs> my first love um, and uh, he told me that John Mutz was looking for people well, I had covered John Mutz when I was a reporter in Evansville yeah. and the only two politicians I really respected in Indiana politics were John Mutz and Dick Luger and I thought if I'm going to be effective and I thought of doing this getting into politics and getting out and going back and uh, make me a better reporter. Yeah. So I, I um, and Luger already had his team. He didn't need me. But John Lutz was looking for people. This was like in late 86, early 87. And so John Lutz sent Steve Carter, who eventually became the Attorney General, who was the Chief of Staff, sent him up to Grand Rapids to talk to me and my then wife. And they offered me a job. So I... Wow. April of 87, um, doing communications work for the lieutenant governor, but down here. That's interesting. Um, and um, I stuck with him, 87 and 88, and then he lost to Evan Bayh, and I got into the private sector 
mm-hmm. for, for many years. Wow. So I yeah. So <clears throat> what made you then want to get involved with the Indiana General Assembly? Well, this is funny because as a kid, I always knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I was never one of these kids who drifted or, you know, I don't know what I want to do with my life and I'm going to go to college and maybe I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. I knew in grade school that I either wanted to be the mayor of South Bend or a television anchor. Okay. All right? <laughs> Those two. <laughs> yeah. And, and the local television anchor from Channel 22 was a, was a lector at our Catholic church. And, you know, Roland Kelly, his name was, and he mm-hmm. would get up and give the announcements and do all that. I was so impressed with him. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and then Mayor of South Bend, I just thought it'd be cool to be the Mayor of South Bend. And so I kind of had this two-track thing in my mind. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, we had to present a, like, a concept, uh, tell a story in social studies class. And I, um, I said, um, let's, we should do a newscast. And if I don't get to be Chet Huntley, then we're, I'm going to quit the team. <laughs> and so we did it. There was, an old, there was a newscast back then. NBC was called the Huntley Brinkley Report, and it was Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. Right. And uh, so I did that and, you know, just kind of continued to develop. And back, you know, by the time I got in high school, the way to save the world was to be a reporter because I was Watergate, mm-hmm. right? Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, yeah. the whole thing. And, and that was, you know, reporters were held in great esteem at that time. And so I decided I was going to, you know, I knew I was going to be a reporter and just kept pushing myself that direction. Yeah, that's interesting. So, And so when did you uh, officially decide to run for the Indiana General Assembly? So I, I, I left, after John Mutz left, I went to work for Simon, the mall development company, and they were ironically one of the big funders of Evan Bayes' campaign. Okay, wow, that's interesting. And uh, I went to work there and uh, worked in, I started off in public relations, which I always technically was in, but... I ended up doing a lot of work for the developers in the company. They had these mall projects all over the company and I would all over the country and I would go in and the, you know this, I call it the right to build. I would go into a town and we'd figure out with the developer what the obstacles were to building a mall. And whether it was neighbors who didn't want you there or environmental reasons or you know, endangered species on the land or whatever it was, and I would hire a local law firm and a local PR firm, and we just kind of work over time to knock down all the barriers to get the right to build them all. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, I really wasn't involved in politics for the first year and a half or so. And then in 1990, I decided to get involved, and I was living in Southside, Perry Township, where I still live. And um, I've owned the same house for 28 years. And um, um, I decided I was, I had been the John Mutz's voter registration chairman for Marion County for 1988 during the election. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to get involved in Perry Township. And so I went to the Perry Township chairman. His name is Urban Merle, an old World War II guy, and who fought in the Netherlands, by the way. And um, he, um, I went and said, hey, you know, first of all, they didn't trust young people at all. You had to be like 50 before they allowed you to run for office, mm-hmm. right? And um, I said, listen, I'll be your voter registration chairman. And he goes, well, come to think of it, I don't have a voter registration chairman, so I guess you're it. 
So I went to my first ward chairman's meeting in this little house on South Madison Street. This would have been late 1989. And uh, maybe, yeah, sometime in 89. And uh, one of the state reps, Gene Liu, who you ought to interview, said, I'm not running for re-election. And back then there were multi-member districts in Marion County, Allen County, and maybe in St. Joe County. Um, and um, so three guys represented one broad district, 156 precincts. And I, um, I came home and said to my wife, guess what? I think I'm running for state rep. There's an opening. Hmm. So I jumped in, and back then we had slating, the whole slating process, uh, which is a long explanation. But um, the idea was you had to get the votes of the precinct committeemen to, yeah. to move forward. And so um, I had a few opponents, um, a couple of incumbents, and then a guy, a legendary guy named Keith Bulin, who kind of reformed the Republican Party in the 1960s and still is thought of the god of Republican politics in the state. And I didn't even know who he was. I had no idea who he was. And so I started talking to people, and they said, well, what have you done politically? And I said, well, I work for John Mutz at the, in the State House. Well, that doesn't count. That's downtown. Right? You know, we're south side, you know, very parochial. Yeah. And plus, you're only 30 years old, and so, you know, you're way too young. <laughs> so, um, even though the governor was 32. Yeah. Right? So, um, I just decided if, you know, I'm just going to outwork these older guys. And I did. And um, I lost in the very end in the slating convention. But um, I ended up just decided to turn things around and become the campaign manager, which bought me a lot of brownie points. So I became the campaign manager for the three candidate team moving forward. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, one of the guys who, who defeated me, a guy named George Schmidt, um, had already been blind in one eye. And on primary day of 92, he woke up and was blind in the other eye. Oh, my gosh. And so he did serve one term blind. And he, he sat on the aisle, and his wife sat, and this is before all the Internet stuff, he sat on the aisle, and his wife, Helen, read all the bills to him. Hmm. And uh, the Democrats were kind of mean to him because we had this room, 336, we had to go up an iron stairway, and the minority rights had to have the top floor, and the majority got the bottom floor. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't, even though he was blind, they wouldn't give him a location on the, on the lower floor. He still had to go up those stairs. <laughs> oh Anyhow, so, so then um, I got involved in Marion County Republican politics because I realized you had to be involved in Marion County Republican politics to get to the state house, And... Um, uh, the, then, the, then Chairman John Sweezy, another legendary guy, county chairman for 22 years, um, he came to me and said, please don't run in 1992. It's just going to be all messed up. We've got a couple incumbents running against each other, and you would just complicate things. And I said, okay, I won't. And, and he said, but I want you to kind of grow within the party. And he said, I think in, in the way to grow in the party is to learn how to raise money. And he said, you got two choices. You can help me sell tickets at $50 a ticket for a dinner, or you can go out and sell foursomes for my golf tournament at $1,000 a foursome. And I thought, well, I'm not stupid. I'm going to do the golf tournament foursome. A lot less phone calls and a lot more efficiency, right? So I, I became known as a really good fundraiser. And then in 94, George Schmidt decided he couldn't handle being blind and being a state rep and all that. It was just too much. 
And so he came to me and said, I'm not going to run again. And Sweezy said, if you want to run, I'll clear the field because you've been a good team player and I'm going to let you have the seat. Hmm. So I was unopposed all the way through the process. Wow. And I won eight elections in a row. Yeah. And stayed 16 years. So did you have like a a campaign strategy at all or was it so clear that you didn't really have to? Well, 94, it was the Ginrich Revolution. Okay. Right? Yep. And we had 16 new members of the Indiana House. 15 were Republicans and one was a Democrat. And so we kind of swept in. And then two years later, we were swept out. We lost like 10 people and the thing completely flipped. We were, you know, I think we we're at 55, 45. I'm, I'm, this is my memory. I mm-hmm. have to check the numbers. 55, 45, and the 95 and 96 sessions. And then. Um, we lost a bunch of seats, and I think we ended up. Well, it was '96. We had a tie. We had a fifty-fifty, uh, uh, mm. and so, but we we were so cocky in '95 and '96 that we had we had had a tie in '90 in in '88, I think it was, and they had a co-speaker system, Paul mm. Manwater, who you also ought to talk to if you haven't. Yep, and. Um, that would have been uh, John Gregg, who eventually ran for governor. And that worked okay, I guess. But in 90s, so being prepared, getting ready, we thought, well, we're going to make sure that uh, whoever wins, I think it was the, you have to check me on this too, when, you know, whoever wins the governor's race, if it's a tie vote or a tie in the House, the speakership will go to the party that won the governor's race. Right, right. Okay. And um, we had no, no doubt that Steve Goldsmith was going to whip uh, Frank O'Bannon, and it turned out the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so John Gregg became the speaker, mm-hmm. and uh, through our own hubris, right? <laughs> Which happens all the time in politics, yeah. you know. So, um, so I did 16 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a pretty long time. Um, and did you have to do, like, a, a lot of, like, door-to-door campaigning at all? Oh, I did every year. Even when I was unopposed, I did. Yeah. Because I thought you should be out there and you can't take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. Even when I was unopposed, I thought it was building my brand, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's funny because when I ran in... Two th- so, so, so in 2004, I became the county chairman also, which, which a lot of people thought was too much power in one person's hands to be a state rep and also be the party chairman. Mm -hmm. In fact, we just had the controversy with on the Democratic side. Kate Sweeney Bell was a county clerk or whatever she was and also the county chairman. And um, and so um, so anyhow, so all of a sudden I started getting primary, right? And I, you know, I have an idea who put people up against me, but it doesn't really matter. (laughs) And uh, so in 2004 being a big history buff, I was always a student of Lyndon Johnson because I think he's one of the two most amazing people in 20th century politics. Mm-hmm. He and Teddy Roosevelt. They just had personalities who were bigger than this building. Yeah. And Johnson would do anything to win. Well, when he ran in 34 maybe for the first time, it was a, it was a kind of a mid-year election if I remember right. Or maybe it was 36. It might have been 36. But um, he was running against an incumbent in Texas. And what he did was he did yard sign that said Johnson Roosevelt. Mm. Even though Roosevelt had never 
endorsed him. Everybody assumed that Roosevelt had endorsed him because he put Johnson Roosevelt on his yard signs and he beat the incumbent. So I stole the idea. Mm-hmm. And in 2004, all my yard signs said uh, Murphy Daniels. Mm-hmm. And I was friends with Mitch Daniels, but I never asked him to endorse me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was running himself. But, you know, all the signs were... And he used green and white. I had, My signs were always green and white, and I joked with him that he stole my color scheme. But mm-hmm. um, they were always green, reversed out white. And uh, so uh, the guy that ran against me was just frustrated as heck because you know, I had used McDaniel's name on my said It's not illegal. Yeah. With Mitch Daniels, sir. He didn't care. It's like, okay. <laughs> I, was a, I knew him since 87. Yeah. We were kind of pretty good friends. Yeah. He's, he's always been one of my three mentors in life. Yeah. And so he didn't care. He got a kick out of it. Yeah, that's a really interesting strategy, Gary. It's like give, yeah, give people someone they've heard of to make sure that they'll like vote for you and connect you to that yeah. person. So. Yeah, <laughs> just marketing, basic yep. marketing. Yep, <laughs> that's funny. Um, See, so, so you know, what did you think of the election process overall? Oh, I think you know. I mean, I think you know what's who. It, Bobby Kennedy used to say this a lot, but this quote came back in the 18th century. I'm sure it wasn't mm-hmm. his. You know, you get the you, know, you get the government you deserve, mm-hmm. and I really believe that. And with Trump, we got the government we deserved. You mm-hmm. know, and with Nixon or whomever, you know, with Clinton, doesn't matter. You get the government you deserve. And um, I also think that I've seen a lot of my friends win and lose, and. You know, if they lose, they always blame somebody else. But I always say the candidate's responsible. You chose your campaign manager. You chose your this. You chose that. You, know, you were out raising money. Yeah. If you lose, it's your fault. It's not your campaign manager's fault. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty pragmatic, and I still have a reporter bent to things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not to jump too forward too fast, but I, you know, I, even now I'm on a weekly public affairs show that airs statewide on Fox and on CBS stations. Mm, okay. And I'm known not only for being a never-Trumper, which drives a lot of my Republican friends nuts, mm-hmm. um, but um, I'm, I, my goal is to always help people understand how the process really works and the, and right. the influence of money and what issues really matter and what's really going to happen and how power works in the state house. Yeah. And I'm the only one on the panel that has that perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I'm, like I said, I'm pretty direct and I'm pretty, pretty, pretty honest and pretty, you know, yeah. straightforward. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's probably like one of the biggest issues, right? Is that people in general don't understand the process. They don't. No. <laughs> so. Oh, I used to get letters all the time, dear congressman. <laughs> yeah. Can, we, you, yeah, can you fix right. my sewers? You yeah. know. Well, first of all, sewers right. are city, yeah. and congressman <laughs> is federal. I'm in the in the beginning. But I will say that my reporting background always bought me, my perception is, mm-hmm. always bought me about a half-step advantage mm-hmm. with media because they knew I was one of them at one time, mm-hmm. and I had a very open-door policy with the media. Yeah. I think they're doing their job. I'm doing my job. I never refused to ask her a que- answer a question. I'd take their calls. They all have my cell phone number. Mm-hmm. I would help them understand yeah. politics. And even today, when a new reporter comes to town, like Caitlin Lang, when she first came to town, one of the first things I did was have coffee with her and say, listen, I don't want to be quoted, mm-hmm. but I do want to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And so I will help you understand issues, the history of issues, if you need to. I, have, I keep a database of a couple thousand cell phone numbers. 
And so if you ever need to uh, find somebody, I'll give you their cell phone number as long as you don't tell them where you got it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I've always been helpful to reporters for the last, you know, yeah. 12, 15 years or whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. And so it always has bought me, like I said, like a half step. Not that yeah. they're going to be, you know, if I've done something bad, if they're not going to report on Right, it. yeah. But I've always had a little better relationship with the media than most politicians. Yeah, I guess that is kind of a, uh, an interesting background to have when you're mm-hmm. coming into the state house. Um, that, yeah, most don't have. I don't think I've met anyone who really worked in media at all before going into general assembly. Jim Shella, who's yeah. now retired, Channel Eight, the legendary dean of the political yeah. reporters. Yeah. I replaced him in Grand Rapids. Mm, so when he okay. was coming to Indianapolis, I was going to Grand yeah. Rapids to replace him. And we had a lot of friends in common. You know, he's drink mm-hmm. beers together. And, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so what was your reaction when you first found out that you won uh, your election to get become an elected official? Well, it was mixed. I'll tell you why it was mixed, because I was very happy, number one. Um, but my cousin that same year, Tim Jeffers, who's a Democrat, was running against Sue Ann Gilroy for Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't be too gleeful because I had to go to his election watch party and yeah. have some empathy for my cousin. Yeah, and he got his butt kicked, and you know, kind of. I think he probably knew he was going to, but mm-hmm. so I had to. I didn't. I don't. I'm not into victory parties and things. Mm-hmm. I think they're kind of overblown. And, yeah. Um, but and I went around and visited the different political. I always went. I always went when I all the time I was in the state house. Every election, even if I was unopposed, I went and visited the voting, mm-hmm. every voting location in my district, and I still. I don't go to everyone now, but I still insist on voting in person mm-hmm. because I like to thank the people who are there voting or working, Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats, because it yeah. sucks and you don't get hardly any money. Yeah. And, and so, but I would go. Um, I would go to all the precincts in my district, um, and eventually, when we went into '94, we also were changing to single member district, or '92, changing to single member district. So I ran in, when I ran in '94, it was a single person district. Mm. Um, so it wasn't the 156 precincts stretching all over God's green earth. It mm-hmm. was Franklin Township, the eastern part of Perry Township, south of Thompson Road, and then a little bit of Warren Township. Yeah. And I got very lucky because a lot of times in, you know, the party that controls, the party in the majority controls the redistricting. So what I did was I, um, I got very lucky because... The guy, Eddie Mayhern, who you also saw the interview, his brother was a state senator too, mm-hmm. um, Louis. They're both alive still. So he had a district that came down. I, my district formed an elbow around the outside and was like 70% Republican. Okay. I mean, it was like, yeah. um, it was a dream district. And he could not hurt me because the Democrats' goal was always to push the Marion County Republicans out into the donut counties, their districts, so they would get primary opposition. Mm, okay. Right? So he could not hurt me without hurting himself because I, I was on two sides of his district. And so if he pushed me out, he'd have to push himself further out, too, mm. into Republican areas. Yeah. Right? And so in the entire 16 years I was in the legislature, my district only changed by one precinct. And that was because I gave up a precinct to help Larry Buell make his his district more Republican mm, okay. so he could survive. Um, another guy you ought to interview. Um, and um, so 
you'd see guys in, in these districts, they get redistricted, 75% of their district would be brand new. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would lose five counties, you know, mm-hmm. and, and pick up five new ones or whatever. And they had to get to know a whole new constituency, a whole new set of issues, a whole new whatever. And they would get primary opponents because of that. Because somebody would say, well, he, he didn't represent me. Why should I, why should I you know, hold off running? Just because right. it's him, right? Yeah. I never had that problem. I was always in the same district, 60 to 70% Republican. Mm-hmm. So that freed me up because I was in a, such a safe district to be the Republican chairman. Yeah. Um, and do other things for the party. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what were you thinking like when you fought, first walked into the state house, your first day in office as elected official? Well, it's, it's fascinating. First of all, it's, it's kind of, a, it's really an awesome place. I yeah. mean, it's, it's very impressive visually, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of can't believe you're there. Yeah. And um, two, two things I remember from the beginning, everybody gets the first days, you ever get your family pictures taken, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But... The two quick impressions I have is, number one, I just ran to this guy last night at the Bocelli conference, or con- concert, uh, Ralph Foley, who I think you have interviewed. Yep, I have, yeah. I sat next between him and Gloria Gagline, who's now dead. She was from Fort Wayne. And, and Ralph said to me, the first thing you do is get up and walk across the aisle and shake hands with the Democrat, because someday you're going to need him. We're not always going to be in power. Mm-hmm. And best advice ever got. Hmm. And I spent 16 years in the legislature, 12 of them in the minority. I got more done in the minority than I did in the majority yeah. because I had great relationships with the Democrats. And wow. I could always convince them to let my little issue, you know, not all the time, but, you know, some things. And then the other thing I found out was really wild. I was walking around the back of the, of the, uh, the what we call the horseshoe mm-hmm. behind the speaker's dais, and there are a lot of pictures of old state legislators, right? And sometimes they would get their pictures taken, you know, in a group like, or they get, most of the times there were pictures of them sitting in their seats. Mm. And I looked and I started counting seats and I realized I was sitting in the exact same seat my first term as my uncle was in his first term. That's spooky almost, wow. Yeah, and he was only in one year, one term. Yeah. I think he got, I think he was in, he was in, uh, Six, I think he got elected in 64 in the Lyndon Johnson sweep, and I think he was in 64 and 65. And then he tried to run for attorney general and lost, and mm-hmm. he was out. But he, um, he interesting guy in his own right. He was a lawyer and ended up becoming a Catholic priest at the age of 55. Wow. Um, never got married. Um, Tom, his name is Tom Murphy, my dad's brother. But he sat in the exact same seat that I did in his only term that I was there in my first term. Wow. It's like kind of weird. Like, here, that is like makes a hair stand up in the back yeah, of your neck. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's yeah, it's like you know, starts to think there's like some type of destiny or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Anyhow, so that was where I thought my first day. Otherwise, it was just pictures and yeah. getting to know people, shaking hands with people. Yeah, that's cool. So, did you have a, a? Did you feel like you had a pretty good understanding of the process before you came in as an elected official, or, or did you? Have, was there a learning curve for you? Oh, or? there is a learning curve. I think it takes about six years to be a good legislator. Okay. And you know, again, I got great advice from friends. I had a lot of friends who were lobbyists. You know, just to back up a little bit, I left Simon in '92 and went to work for Anthem. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I went to work for Mark Lubbers, who's wife became a state senator mm-hmm. and eventually the higher education commissioner and yep. all that and mark had been a top aide to bob orr mm-hmm. 
and he was the senior VP of corporate affairs at Anthem. So I was pretty much surrounded by political people all of you know, my time at Anthem. And um, as you know, the legislature is part-time. And so um, I, when I was working at Anthem, Mark didn't really want me to run for the legislature. He said, my wife's already a state senator. She became a state senator in 92. And, you know, everybody I count on is going to be you know, not paying attention to me, basically. right? <laughs> and the CEO, who I'm still good friends with, Ben Lytle, who built Anthem from one 1,200 people, one state Blue Cross Blue Shield company to mm-hmm. 50, Fortune 50 mm-hmm. company, 14 states, all of them, um, except for except for Kansas. We lost Kansas yep. when we tried to take them over. Um, <laughs> and he came, the CEO came to me and said, listen, if Mark Levers gives you any more shit about being a state rep, uh, I'll have you report to me because mm-hmm. I want good people to run for the state house and for other things. And so now as being a reporter, former reporter unique, I was the only member of the legislature who worked for a Fortune 500 company mm-hmm. in, a, in a publicly held company. Yeah. And um, so I had a perspective on business issues and other things that other people had no no yeah. no appreciation of. Yeah. So yeah, especially one that's a healthcare company. So yeah. That's really interesting. But but I will tell you, because it's part time, the conflict yeah. lines are pretty yeah, yeah. loose. And and I always say everybody draws their own ethics line, and I try not yeah. to judge other people. Mm-hmm. But I refused. To be on the health committee yep. or on any insurance committees, yep. and my my standard pro- procedure was if somebody if somebody asked me how an HMO worked, I'd tell them. Mm-hmm. But if anybody ever said, "What does Anthem think?" I'd say, "Go talk to the lobbyists. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be involved." Yeah. And so I never worked in the government relations area. I always did did mm-hmm. public relations, and and then I became chairman of the board of Monarch Beverage for 12 years. Uh, which is the big was it still is but not owned by the same family anymore beer and wine distributor in Indiana mm-hmm. and um, I refused to serve on the on the um, public policy I didn't, didn't want to be involved in anything to do with alcohol regulation or anything so and then and the reporters knew that now some of the legislators thought oh Murphy you know he's holier than thou you know if he works for Anthem he should be on the health care committee so he can help mm-hmm. you know policy wise I said that's what they have lobbyists for mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, but the, I think the media always respected that, and I yeah, I imagine, and yeah. I never had a conflict. I never had to worry about that, um, and yeah. it made me a lot freer to be a better legislator. I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that makes makes sense. Um, now, how did you keep track of, like the needs and wants of your constituents when you served? Very well. First of all, you everybody's assigned a legislative aide, and I was pretty obnoxious about that. I always found made sure I had the best legislative aide in the state house, mm-hmm. and I made them. A lot of legislators treat their legislative aides like secretaries, okay. and a lot of them are female. Frankly, mm-hmm. you know, do this, do that, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I mean, some of it's I don't know what it's like now, but back then, you know, yeah. br- bring me coffee, you know, kind of thing. Right. And um, I always made my legislative aide an assistant legislator because I thought they were there to learn and to do real work, not mm-hmm. just to shuffle paper. Right. And so when I came up with an idea for a bill, I would say, I would, you know, I'd give them the bullet points and I'd say, you go work with LSA and come back with a first draft. I don't want to have anything to do with this until it's in better shape, which made them somewhat 
competent, at least knowledgeable about how yeah. you how you draft a bill and how you put it together and do yeah. all that. And then they'd come back to me, and I'd, I'd look at it and say, okay, here's the changes, go back again. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until the very end that I really even looked at the bill. My legislative aide did all the work, and they, res- they loved the fact that I did that because yeah. they were treated like secretaries right. to a large degree. And then my media, then you also get a media aid. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a, the ratio is different. Back then it was like 15 legislators and one media aid. They, they can't do much for you, really. Mm-hmm. But I was been in the television business for 10 years. Yeah. And um, eight years. And um, and your, your, your legislative aid, it was probably more like four legislators to a person. So they could spend more time with you. But I was always very aggressive about getting the person I thought was the best legislator. Now, media, you spent about the first six months teaching them how to write, usually, because they were notoriously horrible writers. But I found one, my best ever, Stephanie Sample, and she, she was so good. I could give her some talking points. Here's what I want the release to say. Here's what I want to say. And she'd come back, and rarely did I have to change anything. She was so good. She was one of the few people, and it's very difficult for young people, to understand the intersection between policy and and, and PR, basically, yeah. and media. Yeah. You know, sometimes they're good at one, not the other, but it takes... So, <clears throat> so um, but, you know, from a... From a practical standpoint, you get a lot of mail. You get a lot of mail from prisoners. I'm really innocent, you know, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but what I would do is I would come home, and the mailman told me I got more mail than anybody in the neighborhood. And uh, it was everything. Annual reports, you know, all this stuff. And so what I would do is I would come home and literally grab my arm full of mail, and I would stand over the over the, over the the uh, trash can. Mm-hmm. And I would triage, I call it triaging my mail. And I used to do this as a public demonstration. I'd go speak at conferences and I'd say, here's how you, here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. And I'd bring a stack of my mail. I got this yesterday. And I'd say, first of all, I don't read annual reports. Mm-hmm. Right? They're too bulky. I don't read them. Uh, second of all, I look at the post, the uh, zip codes. If it comes, I memorize the zip codes, obviously, in my district. If it comes from a zip code in my district, it gets yeah. set aside for attention. If it comes from Gary, mm-hmm. probably doesn't get an answer. Yeah. Right? Because I actually have time. Yeah. And so was, I used to do that little talk to special interest groups to show them how to communicate with legislators better. Don't send any reports. Don't send, you know, this crap. Mm-hmm. Be very, very direct. This is what we want. This is, you know, and have the communication come from somebody in my district. Because I'll, I'll meet with anybody from my district. Yeah. I'm not going to meet with somebody from Gary probably. And um, there were several companies. I remember AT&T one time. They did a mass, you know, emailing thing on an on an issue, you know, and, and they're all written exactly the same except for your name was in the top, but I got the same email that yeah. somebody else got. Yeah. And you just kinda of dismiss those. I mean, yeah. It's just kinda of stupid. It's yeah. a waste waste of time. And so I became pretty good at, at uh, because I understood how I want to be communicated with in my public relations business. Um, I've, I have helped many lobbyists communicate with legislators better hmm. and be more more efficient in their communication because I know what what they will read and what they won't read. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in terms of like how you utilize your aid, your legislative aid and stuff, that's seems like that's a, a much more beneficial way of going about it than having them not being able to help you with anything useful. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. a lot of them, like I said, treated like secretaries. <laughs> yeah, it seems like... They waste. came there for a good experience, right? right. They yeah. came there to learn, 
you yeah. know. And they can't help you much if they're just giving you coffee or something. So. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I used to used to drive the legislative director, the the, the staff director's nuts is when I'd meet with my, my mm -hmm. first aide for the first time, I'd say, I was always very direct. I'd say, stay here three years and get the hell out of here. Okay. Because you can stay in government too long, mm -hmm. and then you're unmarketable in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And in, and um, you, uh, I said, well, if you can, IUPI is six blocks away. Get your graduate degree right here. Maybe stay next year and get law school. Yeah. And take advantage of the opportunities around you, and then get out of here. Yeah. I tell the same thing to young people. I, my son, I say, go to Washington for two years. Mm -hmm. Work on the Hill. Get it on your resume. Yeah. People love this. When they see it on your resume, they want to know all about your experience. But get the hell out of there unless you get your grad degree while you're in D.C. Mm. probably 20 universities in D.C., right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but they didn't like it because they wanted everybody to stay 10 years, and sure. that's a disaster for yeah. most people. <laughs> you're young, keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, do you remember the first bill that you ever sponsored or authored? Uh, I'd have to think about that. Uh, I wouldn't want to guess, um, but generally I did three things. Almost all of my bills had to do with cutting taxes. Mm -hmm. One of my great missions was to get rid of the inheritance tax in Indiana, okay. which I thought was a double tax. And mm -hmm. I got rid of half of it while I was there. I got an, when I say half of it, I got an exemption back then for any estate. Uh, under $100,000, which back then was half of all Hoosier estates. Yeah. And then after I left, they eventually got rid of the whole thing. Okay. But but I, I did that. Um, the other was getting rid of government regulation. I thought you should you should spend more time getting rid of laws than passing laws. Um, and we did in 1995, I think, pass a sunset law that all regulations had to sunset every seven years and had to be re-justified. Mm. which is a good thing, but it didn't work because the lobbyists were much more powerful than we were and mm. they were able to defend okay. all the rules. You know, yeah. the rules happen for a reason, right? Yeah. And um, so I did a lot of that. And then I always tried to write inequities. Um, and it, it could be something like, for example, Bluff Road, which was outside my district, was still south side. There was a little boy, 12 years old, who was in his Boy Scout uniform and he went out to get the mail on Bluff Road. Mm. Uh, you know, the mailbox is on the road. And got hit by a drunk driver mm. who okay. creamed the kid and went and hid in a cornfield for eight hours until he wasn't drunk anymore so they couldn't charge him. So there was a differentiation in the penalties. If you ran over somebody mm. uh, and left the scene, it was one to three years. Yeah. But if you hit somebody and you're a drunk and you left the scene, it was three to eight years. Well, he went and hid in the cornfield until they couldn't prove he was drunk. Uh -huh. And he got the one to three. And so I changed the law to even that up. Yeah. So it didn't matter. If you left the scene of an accident after hitting somebody, yeah. you got the same penalty whether you were sober or drunk. Right. So I did things like that. But my, one of my favorite ones was um, Southport Little League. I mean, like a community center. I spent so much time at Southport Little League. And I still tell young people, best days of my life were being a, a Little League dad, you know, helping coach and, you know, work in the concession stand and hang out in Southport Little League on Saturdays. And um, volunteer organization, right? Volunteer treasurers, volunteer everything. And it's a nonprofit. So um, there was a couple treasurers in a row who were supposed to file a certificate with a local township assessor to keep up their nonprofit 
non-taxable, mm-hmm. you know, uh, status. And she was kind of a bureaucrat, and she decided she was going to teach them a lesson and charge them all the all the property taxes that they owed. Mm. And it would have bankrupted Southport Lily. I mean, it would have owed like $26,000, and the place would have gone under. And so um, I got a call from the accountant, who was, again, a, a volunteer, and he says, anything you can do. And rarely can you get something done retroactively. But um, I got together with the state senator at the time, who was chairman of the finance committee in the Senate, Larry Borst, who's, who's now gone. But he... Um, I put together a bill to give them a retroactive tax refund. And then I called the guy that ran the Southport Lily. I said, and things happen very quick in the legislature. I mean, you know, 24-hour notice on a committee hearing, right? So I called the guy. I said, listen, I know this is where they know us. I, I'm gonna, they're going to hear this bill tomorrow. And we're going to, and, and then we're, actually it was getting to the final vote, the third reading vote. And I said, I need you to bring me the two cutest Little League players tomorrow, one boy, one girl, in their uniforms, with their mitts. And um, and so he brought me this little six- or seven-year-old girl with a ponytail sticking out the back of her, base, back of her baseball hat, and this little boy was a little bit smaller. And I brought them up to the front of the room. And... Um, um, had them stand right next to me, and I said, "How can you vote against these two kids?" You know, because I was a marketing guy, right? Yeah. And a lot of a lot of politics yeah. is symbolism. Yep. And you know, we got the ninety-nine to nothing vote, and they got their retroactive uh, tax refund. So I liked writing wrongs. I, I now I remember the first bill I passed, and I got a little bit of trouble for it. But um, so, um, and I'm a lifetime NRA member. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, you shouldn't use, you shouldn't be killing people with guns, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, there was a string of murders that had occurred um, in Marion County and statewide. Things were kind of bad. And that was a time when people were starting to crack down on crime, you know, when, when they started saying you have to serve a certain percentage of your sentence right. and that kind of thing, which you still have to do in the federal, under the federal system. But um, so I, again, I was a little bit into the drama, the marketing of ideas. And so Laura Miller was my first legislative aide. And so I had her take a, get a roll of butcher paper. And I had her write down, probably with a Sharpie or something, the names of all the murder victims of the past year in, um, in uh, Marion County. I think it was Marion County I did. And... I got up there and I had her, when I was talking about, I had a bill to increase the penalties, to add five years, at the discretion of the judge, five years sentence on to um, uh, any sentence for um, using a firearm mm. in the commission of a violent felony. And I got the NRA to back it. Yeah. And so when I was up there talking, she rolled out the butcher paper from the front of the room all the way back to the chamber with, I'll say, back then maybe 120 names. Who, who knows what it was? And I said, every one of these people, you know, died because of a firearm and it never should have happened. And um, the bill passed. That was my first bill I passed. And, but I did get a little bit of trouble because one of the Democratic legislators had a relative 
whose name was on that roll of paper, Ooh. and she got very traumatized. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. How dare you do this? I yeah. wasn't doing it on purpose. Right, of course. Just, yeah. I didn't know it was related to anything. Yeah. So I, I apologize. And that was it. But the sad thing is, I was just talking about this a few months ago, I, have, I cannot prove that that law was ever utilized. I don't know that any judge, and ever so read any story where a judge said, okay, you're getting five more years. Now, you can do it on the federal level. Yeah. But in, in, and I don't know. You know, I always say that, the, you know, it's time to leave the state house when they start repealing the laws you passed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that ever even got, I haven't looked back on the code. There was a major in 2019, major criminal code revision. But, um, but I still have no evidence that that law was ever invoked by a judge. Hmm. And it might have been used as a throwaway charge, yeah. you know, that eventually got pleaded down or something like that, which I think is a wussy way to do things. But um, So that was the first one, the first one I passed. Um, so I would do things like that. Um, I always, always kept it to six or seven bills a year that I would file because um, I thought that was the most anybody could manage. And what you find is that every party is for less government until they get in charge. And then they want to tell you how to live your life according to their philosophy. Yeah. And I had a friend of mine, I think you interviewed her, Pat Miller, who is a, yep. kind of a tough, tough old bird, you know, from the east side. And she shared part of my district. And uh, she was a big, you know, less government person. And she would file 40 bills a year. And I'd say, Pat, and every one of them told you how to live your life. Mm-hmm. One time she, she passed them. She had a bill that was going to, Require every nonprofit, every Boy Scout troop, everybody, to come up with a plan to how how to keep kids safe in a storm. Hmm. And I got up there, and and I was making fun of the bill, and I said, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I said my mom taught me how to come in out of the rain when I was two years old. You know, why do you need a law? Yeah. And she was standing in the back of the room. I didn't know she was in the back of the room. And she started crying. She was like, Oh wow, okay. Anyhow. Sometimes my humor got away from me. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Anyhow, so those, so so the 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 the, uh, the five year penalty was was the first bill I passed, but again, it was almost always deregulation. It was um, cutting taxes or righting wrongs. Those are the kind of the three areas mm-hmm. I tried to tried to focus on. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so how often would you say you had to work with the Democrats to get legislation passed? All the time. All the time? All the time. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. Probably the best example was, um, and you, you know, you wheeled and deal. That's part of the game. But um, so um, after 9-11, everybody was frantic, you know, what, what was going to happen um, to the world, to the United States, everything. And uh, I went to the Democrat caucus chairman, Larry Grubb, who you ought to interview too. He's a member of the Alcohol Tobacco Commission. Um, he's from the west part of the state. Great guy. And um, he and I decided that there were that 9-11 had exposed a lot of weaknesses in the state of Indiana. And so we came up with 10 bills that we, we called the Indiana Preparedness Package. And one of them included a constitutional amendment. And I can't remember everything that was in the 10 bills, but things, and we worked with terrorism experts and people like that. And John Gregg, who was the speaker, he, he used to always blow me shit. I don't know why. Now we get, we get along fine. But he, he uh, just to make fun of me, he'd always call me Marty. 
And then he'd always make sure I was the last person in the room that he recognized to speak on the floor. Now, I, I took that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Right? He paid, he, he, there must have been something he feared about me. I right? <laughs> and, uh, and I was not a lawyer. And so the best compliment I ever got in the house, Jeff Espick, another guy you ought to interview from near Fort Wayne, who was Ways and Means chairman for a long time, he came up to me one time and said, Murphy, you're always the most prepared guy in the chamber, which I took as a big compliment because he, I had a lot of respect for him. And the reason it was is because I took on a lot of big ideas, and whenever I got up, you know, I was not a lawyer, and whenever I got up to speak, there'd be seven or eight Democratic lawyers lined up to, to rip me up, and so I had to be better than them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were pretty good, frankly. Yeah. And so I always was... I always went way out of my way to prepare. And the reason I contrast that with a lot of, and this happens in both parties, you get legislators up there who will bring a set of talking points handed to them by a lobbyist. Oh, and they'll, they'll go down the talking points, and as soon as you get up there and start to question them in any more detail, they can't answer the questions. Yeah. Well, you'll have to ask Joe. He's out in the hallway. Well, you're the legislator. If you, know, if you can't answer your own questions about your own bill, why should we vote for this? Yeah, right? true. Should, you know? So anyhow... Um, I, I kind of got off on a tangent there. But, oh, we were talking about 9-11. So John Gregg came to me and said, Murphy, I like your bills so much, I'm taking your name off of all the bills, and I'm going to put myself on as the author, which he had the right to do. And so they all passed under his name, except for he was nice enough to let me keep the constitutional amendment. And it passed in 2004. Uh, the voters voted for it in 2004. And what it did was, so what I, so... So I sat there and I thought, okay, um, there had been an incident in Lafayette, the Lafayette, the typical new kind of care house, where some guy pissed off, drove a truck through the doors, and it was one of those courthouses where the, the basement was really the first floor, and you could drive down and you could literally, he drove a truck full of gasoline oh my gosh. cans underneath the, underneath the courthouse and tried to blow it up, but he didn't do a very good job. It started a small fire, and that was mm-hmm. it. In fact, I don't think they ever caught the guy. Um, and so I thought, well, if you come in the west side of the state house, you could do the same thing. Yeah. And it was before they had the Ballards up there to block all that. It was just pretty open back then. Yeah. And, and once a year for the state of the state message, everybody in government is in that building in one room. Wow. The Supreme Court, the cabinet, all the state office holders. I said, we could lose state government Literally in a flash, somebody could drive a truck bomb into this building and take out all the state government. Mm-hmm. And so I said, um, we need to change that. And the the succession order in the Constitution, I think it was Article Five, said that the governor, you know, if the governor cannot serve, then the then the lieutenant governor cannot serve, and then if the lieutenant governor cannot serve, then the legislature shall choose. Mm-hmm. Who the who the the governor is until somebody can be elected, kind yeah. of thing. Well, to me that didn't work because you could take out the entire legislature. Then who is going to choose the governor? So I decided to come up to mimic the federal succession order, right? And I went to Bob Garten, who was the president of the state senate at the time, brilliant guy, and he was very constitutionally oriented, even though I don't think he was a lawyer, and. I went to get his help. He said, it's an idea. We hadn't thought about that. So he helped me form it so that, you know, the succession order went goes pretty typically traditionally now. It went, you know, governor, lieutenant governor, 
Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem, like you would in the federal system. Right. But then I took it down to six layers. So even the school, state school superintendent, is in, in theory, is in succession to the governor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he pointed out, I've, the way I came about it was, I thought, okay, who would have the most knowledge of the obligations of state government? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody got taken out. I thought the attorney general, because they have knowledge of all the contracts. And, and Bob Garten said, no, that's not right. We can't do the attorney general. We can't put him or her on the list because it's not a constitutionally, it's not a constitutional office. It was created by statute. Mm. And we don't want to create a constitutional office with a, with a tangential amendment. And so we took the attorney general out. But we put in, you know, auditor, treasurer, I can't remember what the order is now. And I'll never forget Todd Rakita, who never changes, by the way. Yeah. He hired a lobbyist uh, to convince me to put the Secretary of State right up near the top. And I said, that's a ministerial office. I said, I'm not putting that. It's mm-hmm. a joke office, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not putting that up there. And he was so mad. Still hasn't liked me ever since. Um, but it passed in 2004. Yeah. It's still part of the Constitution. Um, so that's where I worked absolutely with, with Democrats. And then you'd work on smaller things. I'll give you an example. In 2005, I, was, um, I realized that we have one president from Indiana, Benjamin Harrison, there was nothing in the State House commemorating our only president. Mm-hmm. We had all kinds of other statues. Yeah. So I wanted to pass a law that said, um, you know, that you had to have a bust of Benjamin Harrison in the State House. Yeah. And so um, I went to the Democrats, and they said, well, they would go along with it if I would put in the bill that there had to be an African American. Hoosier Hall of Fame display somewhere in the state house. Okay. I said, sure, sure. So the law passed. I got the Department of Administration to do hire an American, an Indiana sculptor. Mm-hmm. We used an Indian. Everything was perfectly Indiana. Indiana foundry, everything. And then I told the administration there was a there was a bust of George Washington. You walk in the north door where all the governor, the governor, and all the legislators walk in that north door. Right when you get Right when you go, instead of going right underneath the uh, the dome, you kind of go to the left. Most people do and go toward the governor's office. And there was mm-hmm. a bust of George Washington in this alcove. It was the best alcove in the state house. And I said to the Department of Administration, "Wait a minute, we already had George Washington on the lawn. Yeah. We're putting Benjamin Harrison in there." Mm. And so I got together the administration guys, and like on a late on a Friday night or whatever, we moved George Washington up to the fourth floor, and we put Benjamin Harrison. That's funny. <laughs> but we worked on that was another one. But and I knew that the African Americans would never, the caucus would would never agree mm-hmm. on who should be in the Hall of Fame. It's never happened because they could never agree who should be a member of the Hall of Fame. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, so those are things you know you work with Democrats on, kind of give and take, and it's kind of, they're kind of somewhat no brainers, mm. kind of no harm, no foul kind of stuff. Yeah. But you know you build relationships that way. Yeah. And Murphy's willing to work with us on this, so we'll work with him on that. Yeah. I literally got most of my stuff done now. The biggest bill I ever passed was Telecom DREC in mm, 2006. Yeah. And I had a lot of Democratic friends helping me on that. Um, and there, you know, there were a lot of lies told by lobbyists, and we had to get all that corrected. And, but at the time, it was the most far-reaching deregulation bill in the nation for telecom. And mm-hmm. it really blew open private investment 
in this state. And that's why, to this day, you talk to Bill Swords at AT AT&T, Indiana's always one of the first states AT&T invests in now Hmm. because of that. And a lot of states took that bill. Even California took my bill. You know, they changed a little bit, passed it. But it was a national model for for several years. And Mitch Daniels used to say it was one of the three most important things that ever happened in his administration. But it, it took Democrats to help me on that. Yeah, you know, I had Earlene Rogers, a black state senator from Gary, helping, and I had, you know, and Matt Pierce, who opposes everything. You know, mm-hmm. another guy you interview though, because he's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, he was very much opposed to me. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Wynn Moses, who you ought to interview too, mm-hmm. was the mayor of Fort Wayne for many years. Yeah, and he he was a lawyer, very sharp. And he was after me and after me. I oh, this was a racist bill. It was going to hurt black people. It was going to hurt the inner cities. By the way, he never lived in Fort Wayne as a legislator. He lived in Broad Ripple and sent his kids to Broad Ripple schools. True story. And and so, so I knew he was going to make that argument. And he, I let him go, let him mouth off and everything for a long time. And then he's so proud of himself because he thinks he just you know, screwed me big time. And then I pulled out a letter from the then current Democratic mayor of Fort Wayne mm-hmm. said, you know, Representative Murphy, your bill is the best thing that could ever happen to Fort Wayne. And it was Mayor, you know, Moses was the former Democratic mayor of Fort Wayne, right? Yeah. And it just just blew Moses out of the water. And he comes up to me later and says, that was that was good. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I was holding him back because I knew he was going to make the argument. Yeah. Quick story about when Moses... The guy is so clever. He, you know, you respect people. I always had more respect for my enemies than my friends in some mm-hmm. ways because I had to be better, you know, and, yeah. I, and I had to know them better. And, you know, and so in 1980-ish, he pled guilty to, uh, I think it was a felony when he was mayor, uh, some election rigging, some kind of election process. I can't remember what it was. And, the, and, he, and it was part of the plea, they they pled it down to a misdemeanor um, if he would uh, resign as mayor. Hmm. So he said, okay, I'll do that. He lived next door to my aunt and uncle in Fort Wayne on Westover Drive. And so he's a very slippery guy. But, but once you know he's slippery, you can deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so he resigned as mayor and turned around and ran for the special election to replace himself and won. He said, I didn't tell the judge I wouldn't run again. And so he was back in his mayor 60 days later. Oh, my gosh. Whatever. That's crazy. Wow. Cle- clever, clever son of a bitch. I, I, he's a friend of mine to this day. I mean, I could say he is slippery, but he's slippery like a fox. You know? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Wow. Yeah, you ought to talk to him. He'll have great yeah. stories for you. Um, so, Go ahead. So in terms of, like, uh, the relationship between Democrats and Republicans... What was that like when you served, and did it change over oh, time? Oh, it changed or? dramatically. Okay. And so, so when I first got there, they had a party. Every every year at the end of the session, they would have a, what they call a sunny day party, and you'd bring your wife or your husband, and everybody get dressed up. It's like a high school prom. And it was very bipartisan. They'd have it some hotel ballroom somewhere or something, um, or at the press club, which used to be in the basement of of the ISTA building across the street, which we, I used to refer to as the world's largest steak and shake because the color scheme is like black, red, and white, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we went to it for a few years, and all of a sudden, um, fewer people were coming to it, 
And then at one point, the Democrats had a different, a, a separate signing day party from the Republicans. And I got kind of got caught up in that because what is now Prime 47 used to be called Moe's. That was one of the bars that all the legislators and lobbyists hung out with. And the FBI used to hang out there too to try to mm-hmm. catch people doing bad things. And, um, and uh, so I thought that the signing die party, I didn't know that the parties had split the signing die party. And I went to Moe's thinking that's what the signing die party is. So I walked in, it was all Democrats. And I said, well, sorry, I thought this was, you know, bipartisan thing. And they said, oh, Murphy, we like you. You can stay. <laughs> so I partied with the Democrats all night. That's funny. And eventually, I'm told they don't even have the signing day party anymore. Things have become mm-hmm. so tribal, I guess is the word that people like mm-hmm. to use now, that they don't even have it. It used to be, you know, you could, and I guess just for some people it's still true, but you could argue like hell on the floor and go have a beer with them and go have dinner with them and their wife and, you know, later and, joke about all the bad things you said about each other on the floor of the house. You yeah. know? Um, one time, um, Caroline Mays, another person you should talk to, she ran the White River State Park and she used to be the publisher of the, the black uh, newspaper here in town, mm-hmm. the recorder. Sharp, sharp lady. And uh, her uncle, Bill Mays, was like the, the major domo black person in town forever, forever and ever and ever. You know, Mays Chemical Company. And uh, I actually was trying literally legitimately trying to make access to the judiciary for minorities easier you know mm-hmm. and there had been a program started by Randy Shepard and he was the um, Supreme Court Chief Justice to actually get black kids scholarships to law school because there's not many black attorneys in the state there just aren't and when you try to find a black judge the pool is pretty small because there just aren't that many attorneys and when I was state chairman, or when I was a, a county Republican chairman, I had that problem. And, uh, or Latinos. My God, try to find a Latino mm-hmm. lawyer in town who's qualified to be a judge. It's very difficult, even now. So I had this, I had studied commissions and Harvard studies and all kinds of things about what to do. And I came up with this bill. It probably wasn't perfect. But the day I was going to present the bill on the floor, the Democratic county chairman, who was my competitor, Ed Tracy, held a news conference to say I was a racist. And then there was a guy named Larry, who still is around, and he comes to city council meetings, obviously still comes to the state house, but he would, big black guy, really big black guy, and he would wear a Kentucky Fried chicken bucket on his head, and he would wear a sandwich board. And that day, I was the honored featured person on the sandwich board. Mike Murphy is a racist, you know. Larry's walking around the state house with his chicken bucket on his head. And I think he still shows up at the city council meetings. Well, I get up there, and Carolee Mays gets up there and just rips this shit out of me. You know, what a racist bill this is. You're just repressing me like, you know, everybody did in the 1850s kind of thing. It was not my intent at all. And the content didn't say that. But they wanted to defeat it. So I lose. And, in fact, Mitch Daniels called me down to his office and said, are you sure you want to push this bill? It's causing a lot of trouble. Why don't you just withdraw the bill? I said, no, I'll probably lose, but I'm going to push the bill. And so I, uh, I, uh, when she beat me soundly, I'm walking down the middle aisle with her, and she puts her arm in mine, and she gives me this big smile, and she goes, Murphy, you have to understand, when we're about ready to lose, we play the race card. 
And she had this big smile on her face. Don't worry, we're still friends. Wow. Yeah. You know? And when I was at the white, when she was the White River State Park, she get me free tickets to any concert I wanted. And I mean, we were always good friends. We worked together after that. But yeah, I mean, she was very blunt about the whole thing. Hmm. That's what we do. Wow. And we beat you, didn't we? <laughs> Jeez. <clears throat> so, so that's part of it. I mean, but again, it's you know, back to the original question. It's so partisan now and so difficult to work with people. And it's just, it's very, um, and I talked, I don't, I go to the state house maybe once a year. I try to stay away from there. But, um, but you know, my friends who are lobbyists say, not only is it much more tribal, much more harder to work with people, but the self-interest has just become crushing. I mean, it's not good. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So did you witness like this shift when you were serving? Or oh, yeah. Okay. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very clearly. Like I said, we start off with like, high school yeah. prom every year. Yeah. You know, the spouses looked forward to coming you know, getting a big meal and dancing and doing all that kind of it's like it's a high school mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. And over time they fewer people and it became separated, it became Republicans and Democrats separate parties and then no parties at all. So what would you say caused that shift then? Oh, I think I think uh, to a large degree, um, I can't I mean I'm not a psychologist, but I think the 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 over hyping of of messaging that really had no basis in fact by both parties. Mm-hmm. You know, the personalization of politics, you're a racist, you're this, you're that, you know. A lot of it's social media. You know, it's easy, you know, websites and things that put out information is nowhere near the truth, but people believe what they want to believe and they hold on to things. And now you either watch Fox or you watch CNN, right? You don't. I grew up in a family, my dad worked network news. We listened to the CBS radio news on the hour as we drove across the country would say dad we just heard that an hour oh go got to listen to cbs news something going to happen in the last hour you know i grew up in that kind of environment my dad read three newspapers four or five magazines every week you know he said you read all kinds of sources that's the only way you can make judgments for yourself but people don't do that anymore yeah they they get on one website whether it's breitbart or you know the daily beast or mm-hmm. whatever right yeah. and that's all they read and I have friends who, and relatives who are astoundingly ignorant about issues, but they're convinced that they know everything. Mm-hmm. And you can't, I mean, I know legislators who are like that. I yeah. won't name them, but I mean, it just, you just shake your head and go, oh, Jesus, didn't you go to college? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a world. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's worse now. I was at the George Bush, Mitch Daniels thing two nights ago. And a student asked a question about, I'm so frustrated because everything's so tribal. The Republicans are horrible. The Democrats are horrible. You're either far right or far left, and I'm neither one. And how do I... Mm-hmm. And George Bush said, this last election, November 8th, whenever it was, was a turning point because most of Trump... He didn't ever use the word Trump, never used the word Biden, but most mm-hmm. of the current, the former president's people that he backed lost. Mm-hmm. And that's a turning point. He said, but you have to... You can't, despair you have to get involved yeah and I keep on care about we're Democrat get involved push your ideas support people you believe in mm-hmm. that's the only way to turn things around yeah yeah so. interesting anyhow <laughs> well let's see um, what would you say were the differences between the House and Senate 
Oh, I got in real trouble one time for calling the Senate the House of Lords. Oh, yeah. yeah I've heard a lot of people call it that, actually. <laughs> yeah, and, but I had to go apologize to everybody because there were really? senators standing in the back of the room and they were horrified. Really? That's oh, yeah. funny. Yeah, so I had, to, I had to go. David Long was the president of yeah. Town at the time. I, I was friends with him. I said, okay, I, I fucked up. You know, I, was, I got carried away. And wow. he admitted it was pretty funny. But, and I said, so how do I get back in the Senate's good graces? He said, just write a letter, send a copy of the letter to everybody, and give me a copy. So I did that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> just for calling him the House of Lords? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, there's a reason, just yeah. like the founding fathers in D.C., yeah. you know, or in Philadelphia, where they were. You know, one thing you learn about the House, and I guess it's true about the Senate, too, but... And I learned this from a guy, Brent Steele, who you absolutely need to have to interview. He mm-hmm. was a state house member from Bedford for many years with me. And then he was a state senator, and now he's retired. He spends half his time in Costa Rica. But just, I always used to call him, say, Brent Steele's a great American. I mean, he's the epitome of the great American in my mind. Small-town lawyer. I love small-town lawyers because, like Ralph Foley, because mm-hmm. they see everything, they have to deal with everything, and they can't hide because they're, they're law officers yeah. on the town square. They deal with divorce and real estate and business law and litigation. They do everything. And and so they generally have pretty good common sense and good judgment. I used to love to get involved with small-town lawyers on, on issues. And uh, when Brent Steele, my first term, my first session came to me and goes, well, that may be the way you think in Indianapolis, but that's not the way we think in Bedford. Mm, yeah. And I thought, you know what? Brent Steele is absolutely right. And I became one of his best friends. And... Um, so, so what you learn is that the House of Representatives really is representative with all the good things and the bad things about Indiana. You have funeral directors, you have teachers, you have farmers, you have just retirees, you have business, small business people, lawyers, you have every profession is represented. And 99% of them are good people. They're there trying to do the best thing. They may think differently than you, but 99% of them are there for the right reasons. Um, 1% literally may be there for to feather their own nest or to do you know whatever, um, which is true in any profession. Yeah. So, um, and again, I was never in the state senate, but you know, I always had good relationships with the senators. I always had people I could work work, work with, and I was fortunate that. Larry Borst, who was the god of all finance in the Senate, and I shared half my half my district was overlapped by Larry Borst and half by Pat Miller. And Larry Borst looked out for me and you know, helped me along the way to, to get a lot of things done that I never would have gotten done otherwise. Yeah. Um, so um, that's that's the big difference. I mean, the Senate is supposed to be skeptical of everything the House does. I always say, and this is really true. 80% of all legislation is based on emotion. It's all reactionary. Mm-hmm. Somebody got killed, so we need to pass a law. Yeah. Right? Some company went bankrupt, so we need to pass a law. Cincinnati built a c- casino, so we need to pass a law. Right? Very little, only about 20% of the legislation is really forward thinking, you know, high, high minded. Mm-hmm. So it would be. Most of what happens in the legislature is. And you're, and it's inevitable. But it's, you end up getting, if you don't get, if you don't want to be in this role, you are in this role, and that is, most legislation divides up is an attempt to divide up 
the economic pie gives somebody an advantage. For example, the easiest one to talk about is healthcare. Mm-hmm. So the hospitals fight with the doctors. The doctors fight with the chiropractors. The chiropractors fight with the physical therapists, right? And it's all about, you know, I'll just use an example between the chiropractors and the physical therapists. It's all about literally, in words in, in the law or in rule, you know, who, who's authorized to twist somebody's knee? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that gets down that low because it's all about market share. It's mm-hmm. all about money. You know, doctors don't want physicians' assistants to be able to do certain things. Physicians' assistants don't want nurse practitioners to be able to do certain things. Nurse practitioners don't want nurses to be able to do certain things. And it never does it have in mind the good of the Hoosier, the Hoosier population. It's all about who has market share. Mm-hmm. And it's disappointing, but it's, hum- it's human nature. <clears throat> and so, again, healthcare is one of the easier ones to. And then the insurance companies fight with the, with the, uh, yeah. the hospitals, too, right? And I worked for an insurance company. I witnessed all that. Yeah. So, so, that and the emotion of, you know, we have to pass this because. Well, why? You know? Because it's the hot topic, or because it's, I don't care if it's abortion or if it's alcohol or, you know. Gambling, I always say gambling dominates every session Yeah. since 1993, Yeah. even if there's no bills, because the gamblers are always trying to either get uh, more, more table games, more this, more that. It's like the incremental process, right? You get, it, you get your, your nose under the tent this year, and next year you get your whole head under the tent. The next thing, you know, the whole camel's in the tent, right? Mm-hmm. It takes time. But, um, and so, great example, um, I was in, in the legislature one year, and uh, the company that owned, um, it might be Penn National, I can't remember, they, these casinos change ownership all the time, but I think it was Penn National, they owned the one in Lawrenceburg, and the guy actually had the guts to come to the Ways and Means Committee and say, we, you need to reduce, so you, you're always either trying to get more or be taxed less, that's the whole game in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to reduce our taxation because we're up against these terrible people who have a casino in Cincinnati. Well, when you looked, it was their own company that built the casino in Cincinnati. They didn't tell the legislators that, you know, and half the legislators didn't mind to bother to check, right? And uh, so, so it's, again, divide into economic pie and, and so much is based on we want to protect our Indiana casinos from those bad people in Ohio. Well, there's there's no difference between the bad people in Ohio and the bad people in Indiana. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of hypocrisy. Um, Rex Early, who just died a few weeks ago, he used to always say there's hypocrisy and then there's hypocrisy. Mm. And hypocrisy is worse than hypocrisy. And uh, he was a he was a clever guy. Anyhow, um, I'll give you the ultimate, and this is documented. I still have the roll call vote just so if I'm ever questioned about it I can call it up yeah but in 2001 we had a special session Frank O'Bannon wanted to um, raise I think the sales tax and of course that was anathema to most Republicans right and and Brian Bosman John Gregg John Gregg was the uh, the speaker and Brian Bosman was the fairly new uh, minority leader when after Paul Manwar left. And he um, 
he uh, reached and, and they promised, and I ran against Brian Bosman for minority leader at one point. Mm, and okay. it was a three-way three -way run between myself and Mike Smith, who you ought, to, you ought to interview. I think he's one of the two best legislators I've ever worked with. Mm, okay. He's from Rensselaer area. He's retired now. He's, he was an insurance guy. He flew his own plane back and forth. Fascinating guy. He was so effective. It was incredible. And the other guy, unfortunately, who was also my favorite legislator, who's now in prison, John Keeler, who went to prison for mm -hmm. working for Rod Radcliffe and playing games. Mm -hmm. But he was a really good, really, really good legislator. And uh, I don't know what, what caused him to do what he did because he was wealthy and didn't need the money. I don't understand that. But anyhow. Um, so so um, we were told that, there, that we would go to caucus before we would hold a final vote on this this idea. And, and Brian Bosman was trying to negotiate with John Gregg that, and Frank O'Ban that we'll let you raise the sales tax if we cut the property taxes, that kind of thing. Some kind of you know evil evil bargain in my, our minds. And I, and I was when I went in there, I was one of the most conservative guys there. Now I'd be a communist because <laughs> yeah. things have gone so far back. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and wild. so. So we're on the floor of the House, and all of a sudden, the bill goes up on the board. Now, I'll never forget Brent Steele, who was a member of leadership. I declined to be a member of leadership after I ran against Bosman. I decided I was going to be a backbencher like Winston Churchill and just, you know, throw grenades from the back row, so to speak. And, uh, and so, uh, so I was not a part of Bosman's team. And so... I never forget, I'm walking down the middle aisle with Brent Steele, and Jeff Espick is walking towards us, and Brent Steele is screaming at Jeff Espick, saying, You motherfucker, you promised me we weren't going to vote on this until you know we went back to caucus. And the Jeff Espick looks at him and says, Brent, it's all over. Go back to your seat and vote. Okay? So the speaker has a way, when he stands up there, because the board's behind him. He can tell how the votes are clicking, right? You know, 52 here, 40 here, whatever. And he can shut the board down when he gets the votes he wants, right? Because it's his prerogative to shut the board yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was going back and forth, and it finally got, when, and John Gregg and... Uh, Brian Bosma's lights were green to vote for the tax increase. Okay. And then when John Gregg realized that he had the votes, like I'll say 53 votes or whatever, mm -hmm. he and Bosma both flipped their votes to red so they wouldn't have a tax increase on their record, and they sold their caucuses completely down the river. Completely down the river. Hmm. Okay. Later that year, John Gregg and Brian Bosmer are named Government Leaders of the Year in Governing Magazine. And we thought, holy shit, they're getting awarded for fucking over the entire legislature. And I don't know how many people noticed it. I noticed it. Brent Steele noticed it, a few other people. So fast forward, several years later, this guy named Greenberg from Governing Magazine calls me and says, I was working at Hirons at the time, and he calls me and says, you know, I'm doing a profile on Mike Pence. He's you know, getting ready for running for lieutenant or not for vice president. And I really want to get a sense of who he is. And, 
and somebody, everybody says, I should talk to you. So I said, yeah, you can see me. And um, we got, we spent like two hours shooting breeze, and, and somehow the legislature came up, and I was telling him the same story. He goes, Mike, I got to tell you, I'm the reporter who wrote that story for Government Magazine. I said, why did you do it? He said, I knew that wasn't true, but my editors made me write the story. And he said, was, he said, I knew what happened. He said, you're exactly right on the detail. So, it, um, so there's a lot of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. John Gregg, one of the sharpest, funniest guys you ever meet in your life, you know, once a year when he was speaker, he would come down from the, he was a, he was, a, he, he spoke like an evangelical preacher. I mean, he could get the place rocking and rolling, right? And he came down from the podium once a year. And he would say, I can't be for the expansion of gambling because I couldn't face my church congregation in Sanborn, Indiana, if I did that, right? The year after he gets out of the legislature, he makes $350,000 lobbying for slot machines in Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? Wow, yeah. Talk about hypocrisy. (laughs) It had nothing to do with religion or values. It had to do with political survival and then money right um, interesting I could go I could touch you for hours about gambling and you know, all, the, yeah. all the hypocrisy and the euphemisms that were you know yeah that were uh, that's a whole other topic but it's you know and I just said that I'd watch it just try to be a good person yourself mm-hmm. you know I mean you can't run everybody else's lives wow yeah that's interesting um, Those are just two examples about hypocrisy, but there's a lot of it. So I'm curious, uh, shifting gears a little bit. I know you've, you've talked about a lot, a little bit about lobbyists and mentioned them several times. Um, like, how influential were lobbyists in the general assembly? Well, I think most people don't like them. Uh-huh. My brother's a lobbyist in Washington, mm-hmm. very successful. Um, I think they provide a really needed element. They're like, you know, in a stool. They're like one of the three legs of the stool. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because as a part-time legislator, I can't be expected. I have a you know had a full-time job at Anthem. And I was lucky, but I lived in south in in the South Side. I got to see my kids every night. I worked the corporate headquarters just a block and a half away. In fact, when I came in the legislature, my first session in '95, I was so determined to be a good Anthem employee and a good father and a good legislator. This is the very beginning of the internet. And I had the IT department at Anthem put an antenna in the dome of the state house so I could get emails on the floor, which was like really revolutionary. And it didn't work very well, frankly. I mean, a lot of times it didn't work at all. <laughs> um, but I tried, you know, and I could actually get emails on my computer at the state house and, and you know, try to keep up when the slow times, right, when there was not much going on there. Um, and so um, contrast that with so many of my friends who drew, left families and their businesses and they were, their law business would be ruined and they'd have to go back after the session and rebuild their law business every year because people couldn't wait for legal representation while you're gone for four months, mm-hmm. right? Um, a guy named Mike Ripley ran an insurance agency up in Portland, Indiana, and had 
five or six kids, and his wife tried to run the business, you know, and raise six kids while he was down here. And in some ways, it was a recipe for divorce. Um, Vanita Becker, who's still a state senator, comes up from Evansville, three hours, whatever it is, from Evansville, and lucky she has an understanding husband and she's never had any kids so she can live that life a little bit better but so many another guy you if you i don't know if you i went through your list i don't remember all the names you but tim brown i'm interviewed now he's an amazing guy he's a medical doctor mm-hmm. um he's from crawfordsville area roughly and he was a partner in a family medicine partnership and actually got pushed out of the family medicine partnership because he wasn't spending enough time practicing medicine. And he became an emergency room doctor instead, which allowed him to have more flexible shifts, work Friday nights when he got back to Crawfordsville and weekends and all that. But he personally may have, have sacrificed more to be a legislator than anybody I've known as far as career success and all that. Now, my my predecessor, George Schmidt, was a pension specialist at Lilly. And I'll never forget, I was, after I won the slaying convention to replace him, he shook my hand and said, congratulations, you just committed career suicide. And because we, you're spending so much time, maybe a third of your life, you know, um, outside the session too, doing legislative work, that a lot of employers get tired of it. In fact. I was so lucky at Anthem because they never cut my pay. Mm. A lot of employers would say, you're not here a third of the time, we're cutting your pay a third. Yeah. Never cut my pay, never cut any of my benefits, nothing. Never penalized me a bit for working the legislature. Wow. And that's not true for a lot of people. A lot yeah. of people, and then, and then the other thing is, sometimes you would be a legislator and your employer would let you become a legislator but you would never get a promotion. And then if you decided you wanted to go get a new job, nobody would hire you because they'd say, well, you're not going to be here a third of the time. Mm-hmm. We're not going to hire you. Nothing against you, but we're going to hire somebody who can be here full-time. That's what we have. Job. We have full-time jobs here. <laughs> yeah. And so it was career suicide for a lot of people. I was so lucky. Again, I could, I never missed, never missed a, my son's basketball games, football games, I may get there late, I may miss the first quarter, but I told my kids I will never miss a sporting event. And a lot of, a lot of parents could never do that. Yeah. So, so think about your ultimate question. <clears throat> Lobbyists provide a very needed service in the sense that they, you know, legislators come and go, the lobbyists stay forever, right? They're kind of an institutional part of, of the game. And they have information and access to information. The key is not to take everything they say and just swallow it, right? Because they have a self-interest. And so, when it, example, when it came time to do telecom reform, I was not a telecom expert. I would have been in the TV business. That didn't mean I was a telecom expert, right? And AT&T, they had this smarmy little lawyer who, they st- who still works there, and his name is Brian something, and he wanted to be in LSA with me for every meeting I had while we're drafting the bill. I said, Brian, you're a lobbyist. You're not part of the drafting process. I will have a bill, and you're welcome to react to it when, once there's a bill. And you can comment on it. We'll consider amendments, just like we would anything other bill. But you're not my babysitter on this. And he was so pissed. He was so pissed. And 
if you're not careful, if you don't have a sense of yourself and your own, you know, whatever, abilities, it's easy for legislators to to just buckle under and submit to a lobbyist who, you know, number one, is either a big contributor to theirs, and don't ever kid yourself, money does play a part, uh, contributor to theirs, or has knowledge that they are, don't, aren't confident, comfortable with or don't have the time to redo their own research. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend of mine when I was doing telecom, I, he was he spent a lot of his time down in the Supreme Court Library looking up federal statutes for me and things like that. You know that, um, so I would understand the interplay between state regulation and federal. I was not an expert in federal telecom regulation, right. by any means. Um, and it took us two years to get it done, too. By the way, um, so so lobbies play a very important role, and there are good lobbyists and there are bad lobbyists. And you and there's a saying in the state house that you know all you have is your word, and once you're known to be a liar or whatever, then you're done in the state house. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the honest ones, you know the dishonest ones. And I could sit down and, you know, this is not the topic of this conversation, but I could sit down and go down the list and tell you who the crooks are and who the crooks aren't. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I was the co-author of the 2010 ethics bill, hmm. which changed the whole direction of the state house. Yeah. With Pat Bauer, who was from South Bend, I knew him. He's from South Bend, a Notre Dame grad, and just between you and me, what? Well, it's not just between you and me because it's history. But um, I decided to become the co-author of that ethics bill. I went to Pat Bauer and asked him to be the co-author, and he knew me and trusted me. He said, "Sure, yeah, you'll be the Republican co-author." The reason I did it because I knew that Brian Bosma would want that spot as the co-author, mm-hmm. and in my opinion, there was no worst example of ethics in the state house and I was not going to give him the platform to say he was Mr. Ethics and so I grabbed the co-authorship and then I retired from the legislature in 2010 I actually ran for Congress against Dan Burton and lost but um, the um, you know and I so I didn't have to live under the ethics rules that I created myself with Pat Bauer but um, prior to that it was a wild, wild west. I mean, lobbyists would have open bar tabs at Moe's and at the Columbia Club and stuff. And I mean, nobody paid for a thing ever. They paid for legislators to go on golfing trips to Scotland. Wow. Now, you had to report it, right? And right. the lobbyists, if it was over, I can't remember, either, I think it was $250. It was over $250 expense. The lobbyists had to file a report with the clerk of the house. But anything under 250 you know, our legislators got pretty fat, you know, um, getting free dinners. And I made my own money. And I would often say, hey, I'll pay for that. And a lot of times I would insist on paying for my own meal or paying for the lobbyist mm-hmm. if we were sitting down talking. You know, it's like, well, you know, I was friends with a lot of them too. I wasn't going to be just a suck, you know, you know, siphoning their money away. I'll tell you a funny story. There were, um, there were, well, there were a couple of legislators who were famous for going way overboard on the freebies. Um, and uh, one was Joe Zakis. Like, he was, and here's a guy, evangelical Christian, Notre Dame grad, law school, whole thing. 
and kind of a lazy guy. I don't think he was ever a committee chairman in 30 years in the State House because I don't think he wanted the responsibility. But he, um, he loved good wine. And uh, Jeff Linder told me the story. So Jeff Linder was the caucus chairman. Another, if you haven't talked to Jeff Linder, one of the funniest guys you ever meet. Okay. He is hilarious. Um, he was a sheep farmer in a city, count, a city attorney in Shelbyville and had a little sheep farm in Waldron, Indiana, along the, along the Blue River or the Flat Rock, one of those two rivers down there. And uh, God, is he funny. And he was he a was, um, very good mentor. And one time, because I have this crazy sense of humor, one time I filed an amendment to a bill that was going to make it illegal to put up Christmas decorations prior to Thanksgiving. <laughs> I get so tired of it's July and yeah. Walmart and everybody has their Christmas yeah. decorations. I want to make it illegal. Prepared, yeah. And he came to me and said, withdraw that amendment. I go, why? Because he says, you want every, everything you do is, is there forever. Mm-hmm. And you want everything you've done to be serious. You don't want, you know, because you may think it's funny, but nobody's going to understand that 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, here's who's this idiot that tried to outlaw Christmas decorations before before thing. So he was he was a, he was a good teacher, um, but um, so he was. I mean, he was the chairman of the ethics committee. He was he was really 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 rock solid, and uh, he was very good at teaching you what to do, what not to do, how to be how to be thought of seriously, how to do things in a good way, and you got you had to make sure and interview him. I, Tell you a quick story. He and he was so ribald in his humor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he became a lobbyist later for Ball State, and around the first female president of any university in Indiana, Joanne Gore, he would use the F word all the time. I mean, and she'd just say, "Well, that's Jeff." So he was speaking at a Lincoln Day dinner in Shelby County one time, and I was there, and he told the story about how, you know, often. He, Guys from Indianapolis would come down and hit, you know, like farmers like to show you their ground and all that. And he said, uh, so I would go show them the, my, my farm, and I'm walking around the, the outlines of the farm, and we came upon a sheep with its head stuck in the fence. And he told this to a crowd of 400 people, half of them women, okay? We saw a sheep with its head stuck in this fence. And he said, um, I. I, I said to the guy from Indianapolis, uh, do you want to you show you what we do when we come upon a sheep with his head stuck on the fence? The guy said, sure. So he said, so I dropped my door, drawers and went to town on the sheep. And he goes, um, he said, I, then I said to the guy from Indianapolis, do you want a little piece of that action? And the guy from Indianapolis said, do I have to put my head in the fence? <laughs> he told that story. And, the place, and that was his sense of humor. I mean, he was the most outrageous jokester. Um, he ran for Congress and lost. I think he ran against Mike Pence in 2000, probably 1998 or so. I don't know what year it was. Maybe David McIntosh. But um, God, is he funny. But you got to interview him. I don't know if he still has a house in Shelbyville. I know he lives down near Jacksonville, Florida, St. Augustine or somewhere a good part of the year. Mm-hmm. But God, he could tell you more stories. Um, the most irreverent guy I've ever met. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's a wild man. Um, let's see, how influential would you say gerrymandering was? Oh, I think it's I think it's influential to a degree, but I can tell you, I'll go back to Eddie Mayer. 
Ailey Mayhern was in charge of redistricting in 2001. Mm-hmm. He lost the 2000 election after he had designed all the state's district, including his own. Hmm. It's a perfect example yeah. of gerrymandering doesn't rule. It's, it's, it, 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 no doubt it has an impact. But all these people, we have to go to independent commissions. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as an independent commission when it comes to, say, legislative districts. Mm-hmm. It's all political, right? I mean, you can have the facade of an independent commission, but they're going to be influenced. So it's human nature. It's the way politics has worked since Eldridge Gary, whatever his name was, mm-hmm. the guy that's named after, you know, came up with the idea. Um, it's just never going to change. Human nature, you can't take human nature out of politics, and you can't take the politics out of human nature. It's just never going to, you're never going to be able to separate them. So all these cries for Iowa-style commissions mm-hmm. and all that, ultimately, they don't work. Um, and, and um, you know, we have big swings. I mean, for 16 years, we had Republicans in, in charge of the state house. Then for 16 years, we didn't. And then when Mitch came back in, for 16 years or so, we have, maybe 18 years now. When when we lost the election in 1988, there were Republicans in the governor's, literally, cabinet, Bob Ward's cabinet, who tried to claim they weren't really Republicans, <laughs> trying to save their jobs. And, and they actually got to the point where they moved people's desks out in the hallway. They give them the hint, get out of here, go. Wow. Didn't matter. John Goss, who was on the transition team for Frank O'Bannon, I, my job at the time, I had three jobs actually for John Watts. I had an office in the lieutenant governor's office, I had an office in the Department of Commerce, which is where I really hang out the most, and I had an office in what is now called workforce development. I had like three different groups of people that worked for me. And um, John Goss came to me and said, you know, Murphy, you're a reporter for several years. We don't think you're really a Republican. You've only been out of TV for a year and a half, but we like you. We want you to stay on. And I said, nope. I came here to work for John Muntz. I'm walking out the door with John Muntz. I came to serve one guy, and he's leaving January 6th, and so am I. And I was kind of risky because... I had one child and another one on the way. I had no idea where the money was. My wife was a stay-at-home mom. I had no idea where the money was going to come from. But mm-hmm. you have enough. You have to have enough confidence in yourself. Yeah. That you're going to get things are going to work out. It always, always works out. Um, and so, um, so the whole the whole idea of you know the hangers-on, you know, all that. I mean, it, it really it's really true. It's it's. Um, it's just another phenomenon of, of, of state government. Um, and get back to gerrymandering, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always going to be there. Um, oh, I know I was going to tell you. So in 88, December of 88, there was so much, so much wailing and gnashing of teeth among Republicans. Mm-hmm. Mitch Daniels, who was then probably running the Hudson Institute, said, he wrote an op-ed piece in the Star, which I still have a copy of somewhere in my house. And he said, essentially, we had our time. Now it's their turn. And this is a summary of it, obviously. But we had our time. Now it's their turn. And we will get our time again. And in the meantime, GOP should stand for go out in peace. 
and he was criticized heavily in the Republican Party for for saying let the Democrats rule for a while. Hmm. What happens to both parties is they run out of ideas after a while. Yeah, that's why it's very dangerous. That's why Joe Hogsett's a friend of mine. I think he's stupid to run for a third term as mayor. Because by the time you run for your third term, you're on your C team, your A team is coming on, your B team is coming on. Hogs had said when he announced for mayor his first time, if I can't get, the, nobody should run for a third term. If, I can, if you can't get something done in eight years, you're doing something wrong. And now he's announcing for a third term. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, you yeah. run out of ideas. Your agenda is petered out. It's time to turn it over to somebody. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's why. <clears throat> Winston Churchill lost after the war, you know? That's why, I mean, he had served his role. It's time to move on with a different philosophy, different person, different whatever. Um, so thinking then about the legislative process in general, you know, based on your experiences, what would you change about it if you could change something? Hmm. I would go back to being more bipartisan, yeah. number one. That's, I guess, probably the, the number one thing, because I think what you learn if you spend any time there is there are good ideas from both parties and and I think um, now this is probably I'd be crucified for saying this in public but I'm a big believer in split government I think when you know the old saying power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely it's absolutely true each party if they control all three branches, not branches, if they control both chambers plus the governor's office, um, they get carried away. And they, they try to grab too much after winning, you know, they, and just you watch this, you know, what's Kevin McCarthy saying right now? Well, we're gonna hold investigations, we're gonna impeach Biden. Hmm. Well, that's kind of stupid, why don't you do something for the country, right? And the Democrats do it too. And so, so I'm a big believer in split government. Now, I, you couldn't ever put in the Constitution because that would violate all the other, you know, principles of democracy. But I think we're always in dangerous ground, and that's why the courts are so important. You know, John Sweezy used to say, Hitler gained power. Everybody thought Hitler was a nut. Hitler gained power because he corrupted the courts. Mm-hmm. And when the courts started, to, you know, ruling in Hitler's favor in the 30s, that's when... That's when all, you know, whatever, logic, reality, whatever, all checks and balances went away. And so so the courts are very important to keeping things in balance so that one party, one administration, one philosophy doesn't get, you know, carried away. I mean, if Todd Ricky were governor, I'd be praying every day for the courts, <laughs> you know? Um and and he's just one example, but there's always there's demagogues in both parties. There always will be, and um, the courts protect us from those people. So, but split government, if I could make it, you know, wave a wand, I'd say, you know, the House should be revived when the Democrats should control the Senate all the way around. Which I know you can't. Um, Trying to think what else. I think the ethics law generally is good. In fact. Uh, I would go further than we went. In fact, some of my lobbyist friends agree. You know, Kentucky has a, what they call a cup of coffee law. Because what happens is we made the ethics law by trying to compromise and do everything um, and listen to so many people. We made it so complicated that 
lobbyists actually made money teaching other lobbyists on how to comply with the law. So instead of paying, say, you take two, six legislators to dinner, instead of just paying the bill, you know, um, you had to, under the new ethics law, you had to figure out, even down to the dividing up the tip six ways, you know. I mean, the reporting got so cumbersome. And I had lobbyists that say, just, just institute a cup of coffee law, which means you can't do any more than have a cup of coffee with a legislator. So you can pay a dollar fifty, not Starbucks, probably five dollars <laughs> for a cup of coffee, and uh, and that's it. Just cut it all out. Don't don't try to split the baby, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think on the ethics law, we split the baby too much. So I would go to a I would go to a cup of coffee law. Yeah. Um, I would have term limits for chairman. Um, I went to Brian Bosman, even though he was never a big fan of mine, and um, I was on the public policy committee for one term. I asked Paul Manwire to take me off. We call it the Sin Committee because it deals with abortion, gambling, and booze, right? And uh, this is before I became the chairman of Monarch, but I got off it. I just didn't. There's so much temptation in gambling. There's so much money. It's incredible. And I went to Bosma, and I said, you need at least to have the Public Policy Committee chairmanship term limited so that people don't get so comfortable with the gambling industry, they don't get swept up, you know, yeah. and all that, and all the perks and all that. And this is, again, before the 2010 ethics bill. And he, he completely blew me off. But um, I have seen, not all, not by any means, a very small percentage of, of legislators do really unethical things and some of them are still there um, and just because they've been bought frankly. Hmm. Um, when I left after I left the legislator legislature um, uh, several years after I was and I don't lobby that's one thing I never want to be a lobbyist I think most legislators are terrible lobbyists and and I just never wanted I never wanted that to be my life I want to have a life I didn't want to define myself a lot of legislators they're there so long, that's all they know, right? And then so they have to get a job in state government or they have to become a lobbyist to feed themselves. But um, several years after I was in the legislature, I, I, and I do some PR work for lobbyists, as I told you, and uh, help them understand how to communicate with legislators. And I got a call from a law firm here in town and said, hey, would you be willing to talk to a casino operator about doing some media relations work and stuff. And I said, sure. So I met with this guy who was a president of one of the casino companies. And he said, um, I said, they wanted to put a casino potentially in at the Indianapolis airport. And, I, and he was talking about you know, all the problems, trying to identify all the problems you would have. And I said, listen, I said, everybody know Rod Radcliffe's the big coon in the gambling business in this state. Have you met with him? You know, is there a way to do a, a partnership kind of thing so you're not, like, killing each other? He goes, I tried that. And he said, I went to, and again, I could have been an undercover FBI agent for all this guy. I've never met him before. I've only met him once in my life because that is not working for him. But um, he said, I went to Rod, and Rod said, I'm not going to part partner with you. I don't need to. And he said, why? He said, Rod Radcliffe looked me in the eye and said, I bought the state house and I'll buy you too. And that was the attitude. And that's how 
John Keeler went to jail, and that's how, you know, Rhett Waltz went to jail. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's just... Uh, now, Rod, the only reason he has not been indicted, as far as I'm concerned, is, you know, he's either cooperating somehow behind the scenes and selling his buddies down the road. You know, I don't know what's happening. I've been smart enough to know, but... Um, and um, the, the same players are going to be involved in legalizing marijuana. That's the next big cash cow. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm on TV every week, I say it every week. Of course we're going to go legalize marijuana. Maybe not while Holcomb's in office because he's opposed to it, but as soon as he leaves, the dam will open. And... And we will get legalized marijuana because there's too much money involved. The government cannot pass up the temptation to let it become legal and then tax the shit out of it mm-hmm. and use it for whatever. And the excuse they'll use, they always do this, well, Illinois does it. <laughs> well, Ohio does it. And all we're doing is losing revenue to them. So mm-hmm. we, need to, we need to have legalized marijuana here so we can get our piece of the pie. Right? Yeah. It's going to happen. And... And Rod Radcliffe, there was a uh, when vaping became a big deal, there was all of a sudden there was a there was a a decision somewhere. I was out of the legislature by then that we need to regulate vaping because we need to regulate the quality of the chemicals that these people are breathing in, right? To make sure they're not poisonous or whatever. And you can't make this shit up. So Rod saw vaping as a way eventually to control the legalized marijuana market. Hmm. Because Ohio passed a law for medical marijuana, and there were only two ways to ingest it legally. One of those two was vaping. So he thought, if I control the vaping, then I'll control eventually the legalized marijuana market. Hmm. Okay. So he had a bill put in by a legislator in Lafayette, whose name I won't use, but you could figure it out. One of these guys that Rod just owns, and. He had put in the bill, in order, it was a quality control bill, so you had to get your chemicals certified by a lab kind of thing before you could sell vaping chemicals in Indiana. He had put in the bill that in order to be a vendor, or one of those labs or whatever, you had to have experience with overhead garage doors. I'm not kidding you. Because his buddy in Tippecanoe County, that he wanted to use to make the money, had been in the overhead garage door business. And the legislature didn't notice it or didn't care, passed the bill and became the laughing stock of the media because this thing was in the bill and they had to change had to take it out the next year. But watch you know, if you're doing history, watch the future too, right? Because the future becomes history. Yeah. And watch how that plays out in the next four or five years. And it'll be the same people, same same players. Rod Radcliffe will pop back up. He's been banned from the gambling industry, right? But he's still got a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. He's a clever businessman. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Um, that'd be fascinating. <clears throat> Let's see. So um, going through some of like news articles and stuff like that, I saw that there was some uh, legislation that was being talked about that we haven't gone over yet that was mentioned That's during right. your time. Um, do you remember anything about like immigrant rights? I was... The yeah. leader of the anti, yeah, the bad. I was, I my nickname was Amigo Murphy. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk about like what is going on and how you got involved with that? Well, 
So um, I got divorced in 2005, okay? And I, well, back up, back up. So um, I was was a vice chairman of the World Swimming Championships in 2004 when it came to Indianapolis. Okay. And um, I was in charge of marketing and sponsorships and things like that. And we had to go around the world, which was a lot of fun, and report into FINA once a year about how we were doing getting ready for 2004. And we went to uh, Uruguay to Punta del Este, which is like a resort area in Uruguay. And um, we had to report in. And I was trying my Spanish in restaurants, and I was so embarrassed. I could remember a lot of words, but I wasn't getting anything right from my high school and college Spanish. I thought, oh, my God, this is a disaster. (laughs) So I called the um, Latino Institute here in town or whatever and said, I want to come volunteer. And they go, why do you want to volunteer? I said, so I can learn Spanish better. And they said, wrong reason. Go learn Spanish first and then come volunteer. I said, that's fair. How do I do that? And there was a company called Berlitz, which was a language school that used to was founded by some Swedish guy, Swiss guy in the 1800s. But it teaches languages like you would teach your son or daughter how to, how to talk when they're two years old, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It's not all verb conjugation, which is boring, which is the way high schools teach it. You, it's like you know, cup, pen, chair, and then you eventually put things into a sentence, then you put things into a paragraph. You learn like a two-year-old. So I, I hired a tutor in 2002 and got pretty serious about getting really, I'm not fluent, but I, I just got back from Cuba and I did fine. You know, I could understand 80% of what they said mm-hmm. and I could, they could understand 100% of what I said in Spanish. So I, had, I was fine. And I started to get really serious about Spanish and um, I started vacationing in Spanish-speaking countries to give myself more exposure and a chance to practice and all that. So in 2005, I get divorced, and I had become friends with a lady named Juana Watson, who was Mitch Daniels' Latino affairs lady. She was a Mexican immigrant. Mm-hmm. She was from Columbus, Indiana. And by the way, Mitch is the only person ever to be governor and be fluent in Spanish. Wow, that's interesting. He won an award back in the 70s for being the best gringo Spanish speaker in the state of Indiana. Kind of thing. Um, wow. Because everything he does, he does full out, you know. And um, so um, he used to go to Gary, Lake County, to hold news conferences. And he would um, hold them in Spanish and answer questions in Spanish just to embarrass John Aguilera, who was Latino, but was a, a gringo Latino, like he had the last name, but didn't speak a word of English. And yeah. Mitch would be answering all these people's questions in Spanish. And yeah, yeah. Aguilera couldn't even join. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so I went to Juana Watson, or Juana Watson came to me and said, you know, Mike, I'm involved with a nonprofit called Friends of Oldago, and she was from the state of Oldago, which is the state east of Mexico City. The, the capital is Pachuca, the state capital. Probably, I'll say, 60 miles east of Mexico City. And uh, she's from a little village called Canali, which is up in the mountains, like, I'll say, two or three hours north of Pachuca. So it's way up in the mountains. And, um, you know, we go down there. It's not, we, she called it mission work, but it's not, it's not religious mission work. It was humanitarian work. So her group, they would use church, church congregations, would go down there, and they would, sometimes college kids from Hanover College or somewhere, and they would go to Canali 
and they would build houses and you know do those kinds of things. Um, and she said, you know, would you would you want to go? And I said, sure. Well, it was before I went on my first trip. But Eric Turner, who's another guy you need to interview, I've interviewed Eric. He's a great yeah. guy, great guy. And um, he had this incredible nasty bill. It was either eighteen thirteen or thirteen eighteen. I may be transposing my numbers, but that was the number of the bill. I mean, sometimes you tend to remember bills, and bills, bill numbers get legendary uh, history behind them. Yeah, and I still remember a lot of bills by the number. You know, based on how contentious the loading was, right? And so they kind of carry a, a life of their own, the bill number does. And so um, it basically denied, would have denied um, uh, state services to illegal immigrants or non-documented workers, whatever you want to call them. And even, I mean, even to the point of no emergency room care, hmm. no state police protection, no child services protection, nothing, right? And first of all, the legislators pushing it didn't understand the difference between federal law and state law because you cannot deny illegal immigrants emergency room care. You just can't. Mm-hmm. There's two things you can't deny them, emergency room care and a public education. Otherwise, you can deny them pretty much anything you want. And so... Um, I was sitting there, Nick, you haven't interviewed David Johnson, I don't think. David Johnson, another legendary guy you interview. He's a great guy. Um, I'll tell you about him in a second. But So I was his seatmate in the state house, and um, I said to him, you know, I, I got I to gotta speak up about this. And he goes, you'll ruin your political career. Because one of the, one of the reasons was there was a national group called FAIR, and I can't remember what the FAIR stands for, but it was started by a guy in Michigan named John Toutant. And he was the he was the Stephen Miller of 2006. Just the, I, th- I compare Stephen Miller and the Trump administration to Joseph Goebbels. I think he even looks like him. And, and I just the most evil anti, anti-immigrant person you could ever meet in your life. And I fire was the Indianapolis version of FAIR, and they were founded at the Southport Library right in the middle of my district. Mm, okay. And um, I decided I was going to oppose them. And I did a lot of research, a lot of research on the history of immigration law, and I, I won't go into all the details, but um, I got up there, and i never forget David Yant grabbing me by the arm and saying, you shouldn't get up and speak, just stay in your seat. And I said, no, i got to do it. So I get up there, and I gave about a 13 or 15-minute talk, and it was going to pass. I mean, it was, a, it was a train had left the station, and almost all the people backing it, the bill, were evangelical Christians. And so I went through the history. First of all, Indiana, you're not from Indiana, but Indiana has a pretty bad legacy of racism. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I and I will go into a little bit of detail just to so understand it. But so, in the 1851 Constitution um, in Indiana, this was an 1816 Constitution. They decided to redo it in 1851. Um, there was an an article in the Constitution that was referred to was as Article 13, 
And what it did was, well, first was they knew it was going to be controversial. It was so controversial that they were they decided they had to take a separate, they had to vote on Article 13 separately to ratify it from the rest of the Constitution because they didn't want to sink the whole Constitution. And what Article 13 did was it banned all blacks from coming to the state of Indiana, free or slave. So it wasn't just banning slavery. It was banning all blacks from crossing the Ohio River, essentially. Right. And it actually got more votes in Indiana than the rest of the Constitution did. Wow. Except for in four counties, which were generally the Quaker counties, eastern Indiana, northern Indiana. It was one of, basically Richmond area and up that way. But the Quakers, you know, as you probably know, were the first abolitionists. They were the first ones to file a petition in Congress mm-hmm. to get rid of slavery. So, so um, I went through the history of slavery, and I talked about that. And I, you know, I talked about being, you know, my family Irish, and some of them snuck over from Canada into New Jersey. You know, um, so I said I come from a family of illegal immigrants to some degree. And I talked about the. Chinese Exclusionary Act of 1888, which banned, literally said in the federal statute that all Asian women were assumed to be prostitutes. Because that was after they just finished the railroads and the influx of all the Chinese workers, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they were tired of them. So they banned, banned Chinese people from coming to the United States. Yeah, yeah. And then in the 1920s, for a while, they banned Italians. And every, every ethnicity has taken its spot on the bottom of the ladder, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's the Mexicans or Latinos. And uh, so I talked about how because we were such a, and we had so many lynchings and everything here in the state, and I said because we were such a racist state historically, we have an extra obligation to be on the, on the lookout for tendencies within our culture to be that way. And I said this is another one. And um, so then I decided to turn their Christianity against them. And I said I don't judge anybody for their religion. I don't care what religion you are. But most religions have, I don't care if it's the Buddhists, the Muslims, they all have certain common themes, right? And, and so I read from Matthew 25, which is, I'm not great at my Bible, but mm-hmm. it's where it says, you know, I was in prison, you visited me, I was sick and you took care of me, I was whatever, you know, and whatever you do for the least of your brothers, you do for me. And I stopped and I said, and Eric Turner was standing like 15 feet to the right, and how these guys were so mad, the Republicans were so mad at me for doing this. And I said, how does this square with your Christianity? You tell me how this squares. And that's the way I kind of ended the whole thing. And um, the Democrats, every single Democrat stuff, I got a standing ovation for the Democratic side. The Republicans said to like this. <laughs> you know? And so I was like, you know, I was... <clears throat> I was not. I was persona non grata for a while, but we beat it, mm-hmm. and we got. I can't remember the, the vote total, but I think we got like seventy four votes against it, maybe twenty five for it, and we completely flipped the vote. And David Wilkins, another guy you interview, audio interview, was actually one of Brian's best friends. He was a legislator from um, Warsaw, mm-hmm. still around, and he came out to me afterwards and said, "I've been here thirty years. It's the best speech I've ever heard." He said, you completely, he said, the only time in my history of here that I've seen one speech flip a vote. Because usually everybody's decided by the time you get up. Right, yeah. And and, uh, two hours later, I was getting ready. It was like the last day before the 
flipping of the from the House to the Senate, and we get three or four days off, and I was going to the Virgin Islands just to sit on the beach and read books and drink some wine, just to get away from the legislature, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, I've been recently divorced, and I was, you know, probably feeling sorry for myself. And so um, I got a call from Mitch. At the, I was at the airport getting ready to leave, and he goes, I heard about this speech. Do you have a copy of it? And I said, no, I didn't write it down. I just spoke from my heart. Mm-hmm. And he goes... Oh shit! We gotta find a copy of the speech. He said everybody's talking about it. And then my legislator they called me and said, "Murphy, I re- I recorded the whole thing." So somewhere in my house I have a video. Wow! That was back when they were starting to record internet, the the for action, but they weren't making it public record. They put something into law yeah. or some rule that you know the media couldn't have it kind of thing. Um, and now they record everything. But um, so so. Then I then I really became Amigo Murphy, and I I became one of the leaders of the state of the Friends of Hidalgo. And for ten years or so, I went there every year um, with a friend of mine who's going to be just got elected state rep, Craig oh, wow. Haggard. He's a great guy from Mooresville, former Marine fighter pilot and everything, just a badass. But um, it's funny because when Juana Watson um, uh, asked me if I would want to go on these trips. And she said, you know, you can go with the Mooresville Methodist Church, you can go with the Hanover College kids, you know. And I said, oh, it doesn't matter to me. The timing's more important. I can go in July. So she mm-hmm. said, well, that'd be the Mooresville Methodist Church. So I went, and I show up at the airport. And this lady comes out to me, and she goes, um, I hope you don't mind, but we, we drink on these trips. And I said, don't bother me. <laughs> so we would work all day long. We, would, yeah. we did great work. We would, we would... And again, I was I did I, I went there so I wouldn't have to make decisions. I just want to be a hod carrier, you know. I didn't want to be part of the architecture, and I wasn't qualified. But we would like do things like they live on these dirt floors, mm-hmm. and the disease and the you know the chickens would live in their houses with them because everything you valued you kept in your house. So the chickens would be shitting all over the place, roaches were all over the place, and we would we would dig out the dirt floor and pour like a four four four-inch cement floor, you know, which was dramatically revolutionary for them and their families. We would do drainage projects. You know, we had one lady, she's 100 years old, and the water, her house was built into the hillside, and the water would run down the hillside right through her house. Wow. You know? And so we did a water diversion thing, and we built her an outhouse, and, you know, things like that. I mean, some of the houses we built were, there was cinder block, some of them weren't much better than you would keep a cow in here in the United States. Yeah. But it was it was cha- life-changing for them to have a house with a roof. You know, it was a tin roof uh, and a door. We would, we would jury-rig a door with a wire thing for the latch, right? Because we, you know, I mean, it's pretty simple stuff. But we did that for a long time until Mexico became so dangerous that nobody mm-hmm. would go, no trips, you know. We brought... Um, the governor of Odago's name was Osario Chong. He was half Chinese and half Mexican. He, he, he's still a big deal in Mexican politics. He, I was Obrador or the other guy, Nieto, when he became like a member of his cabinet and everything. And they came out to visit Mitch Daniels, and he brought like his entire cabinet. And uh, I taught myself to give tours of the state house in Spanish, just so when they came, I could show them around. And one of the guys, Marco Superville, um, who was a part French because of the French invasion of Mexico mm-hmm. in the 1860s. Um, he was the public safety commissioner. And two weeks after I sat right next to him and had dinner, he was gunned down once he walked out of his house in 
stable dog all because he arrested the wrong guy and pissed off some drug dealers. Wow. And so we couldn't get anybody to go down, so eventually we, we dissolved it. But um, to, in 2007, to, I mean, uh, which I was proud of, I guess, is I got nominated for the um, Profile and Courage Award from the Kennedy, the Kennedy Library or whatever, the one that Caroline Kennedy yeah. gives out. And they interviewed me, and they interviewed a bunch of people who were involved in legislative issues. And, but it was right that I didn't win, because I took a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm still alive. I'm still, you mm-hmm. know. But the guy who won that year was the mayor of Houston, who, against his constituents' wishes, brought in thousands of uh, hurricane victims for New Orleans and housed them in Houston. Yeah. To again, his great political detriment, mm-hmm. and he—I mean—that was a bigger deal, and he deserved it. And, and, but it was fun to be nominated for it. Yeah, sure, that's pretty cool. So, um, so that was it. So I decided to stand up, and and to this day, I've been—I mean—on the board of the Immigrant Welcome Center, uh, and people when they see me, what a Republican, you know, mm-hmm. likes immigrants. How can that be? Uh, but I've been pretty committed to it for a long time. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So, um, and Eric Turner and I used to get along. Yeah. In fact, he came to me years later, and I fought. But so Eric Turner came to me a few years later and said, "Murphy, I will never admit this in public, but he said my church, and he's a very evangelical guy. He said my wife and I um, were assigned to help some of the poor members of our congregation mm-hmm. with house household budgeting, mm-hmm. and we got assigned." Uh, family of illegal immigrants. And he said, we sat around the kitchen table with them, we got to know them as human beings. He said, I will never vote the way I voted. I will never, I will never, never introduce a bill like that again. Mm-hmm. Because I learned. He said, you were right all along. Um, so, um, anyhow. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, See, I also saw some legislation about like child abuse when you were serving. Was there? Do you remember anything about that? Well, I don't know if I remember anything about child. Did I author it? I, it was hard to tell from the newspaper article. What year would it have been? Uh, gosh. Uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think it was in two thousands, but. Uh, okay, I'd have to I'd have to think about it. Yeah, go back and it's just not like jumping into your mind. It's probably not that yeah. big a deal. Yeah, the but. one thing I was really involved in that um, I was really happy I did. Again, I tried to right wrongs. Yeah, and um, Anthem, my former employer, had instituted a a lifetime limit on artificial limbs mm-hmm. to save money. Now. Um, no, nobody grows up wanting to be, you know, an executive in an insurance company. It's like nothing any kid dreams of. But for me, working for Anthem allowed me to do what I loved, which was do history. They pay for my history grad degree at IU, for example, mm-hmm. to do history and to be in the legislature. Yeah. So it was a means to an end. It wasn't an end in itself. But so so they instituted in 2007 or 2008 a um, lifetime ban on prosthetics. Well, so take the extreme example, a nine-year-old kid loses his, you know, bottom part of his right arm to cancer, and it's his right arm continues to grow, or his left arm continues to grow, 
and you have to keep up, right? Or else you can't play baseball, or if your one arm is this long, and another arm is this you can't yeah. really do much, right? And, and that's what a lifetime limit would have at some point, you know, he would have been out of luck for having a prosthetic device that worked or whatever. And um, I said that was bullshit. And so I, uh, oh, what was her name? She became the, Julie Halvick was a lobbyist. And she became eventually Brian Bosman's chief of staff. Now she, I think she lives in New Mexico. But she was representing the you know, the, the people, the disabled people or whatever. And I decided I was going to take this issue on. And um, in, in committee, John Willie, who was the lobbyist for Anthem, because I knew him because he you know, I used to be down the hall from him. And he's, you know, trying to do the, the insurance company, the insurance industry, you know, line, so to speak. And we just can't have these runaway costs, and we can't do this, and can't do that. And uh, I said, John, I said, Anthem, I think just two years ago, set up a division, a department in California that sought out pregnant women on the rolls and went through their insurance applications, and when they found mistakes, they used that as a reason to throw them off the insurance, cancel their insurance, even though they were pregnant. And I said, you got fined by the state of California $1.2 million, which I know to you is like a rounding error, right? And he, to, his, to his credit, he said, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> and I said, so why should, we, why should we believe you at all that, you know, limiting the access to prosthetics is somehow a good policy, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's money. It's all about money. And it got pretty heated. And Julie Halbert came to me and said, Murphy, you know, let's back off this. You know, nobody wants this. You know, leadership is nervous, all this. I said, sorry, it's out of your hands. I'm, I'm running this issue now. And I won the day. And I got the law passed that banned lifetime limits on prosthetic devices. And one of the things I did was, again, my marketing background, I brought a Purdue professor down. There's a woman, and she um, had been riding a motorcycle, somehow got in a wreck, and lost both of her legs from the knees down. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want you to come down and testify. And by the way, I want you to wear a skirt, you know, or shorts or something. I want mm -hmm. them to see you walking down the aisle of the committee room mm -hmm. with two fake legs. And this is before a lot of those fake legs became almost bionic, right? Right. And um, and so we won the day. And Julie came up to me and and she goes, I can't believe you got this through. You know, I thought you were going to ruin your own reputation and ruin my reputation and <laughs> make enemies forever. I said, but you still got to do what's right. You mm -hmm. know, it's not going to change your obligations. Yeah. So um, so that was that's not child abuse. But I think, I'm trying to think what else um, around children I did. Um, I told you the Bluff Road story. That's kind of involved kids. Mm -hmm. um, oh, the other thing I did, and this is not child abuse, but um, there was a woman from South America who was a bank teller. And this was between 2006 and 2010. Um, she was a bank teller in Lawrence. And a guy comes in to the bank, and right in the process of arriving at the bank, mm -hmm. shoots her in the stomach. She was like five and a half months pregnant. Well, she lost the baby, but they could charge him with robbery and aggravated assault and attempted murder, mm -hmm. but they couldn't charge him for anything with a baby. 
And so I passed a law that said if during the course and the commission of a violent felony, um, even if you don't know the woman's pregnant, she doesn't have to be showing, she doesn't have to be eight months pregnant, even mm-hmm. if she don't know she's pregnant, and you cause the baby to die during the commission of a violent felony, you can be charged with murder for that as mm-hmm. well. And that made national news because it got caught up in the abortion debate. And I'm pro-life, but I, I never got wrapped up in a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I figured that other people can make all those arguments, you know, kind of. On that stuff, you kind of spin your wheels, you know. Um, they're for or against. Everybody argues past each other. Nobody changes each other's minds. So I right. said, why get involved in the debate? But, but I did get involved in that. And, um, you know, it's obviously too late to help her. And that's not one of those laws. I don't know if it ever had an impact. Oh, it did. I'll tell you why it did have an impact. Because years later, there was a Chinese woman named Bebe Shui. And she came to the United States from China. And she was dating a guy and got pregnant. Mm -hmm. And he wanted her to have, you know, an abortion. And, you know, he wouldn't, you know, they were engaged. He dumped her, the whole thing. Well, I don't understand the Chinese mentality. But she lost face, basically. And she tried to commit suicide by drinking rat poison, Yikes. which is a very acceptable way to kill yourself in China. But because of the EPA and everything, American rat poison is much less potent than Chinese rat poison. So it didn't do the job. She just got very, very sick, and she lost the baby. Mm-hmm. So um, she was charged with um, negligent homicide or something like that for killing her baby. And the prosecutor, who was, I think, Terry Curry at the time. So the murder, so it, it took a while for her to be charged, but anyhow. So, so I think Terry Curry was the prosecutor and charged her based upon my law. And um, Linda Pence took over her defense, and there's no tougher attorney in town than Linda Pence. She's, a, she's, a, she's, she's, she's really tough. And uh, she decided to take it on for free and was able to convince the judge to um, let Bebe Shui plead guilty to child negligence or something that would be a misdemeanor because if it was convicted of a felony, she would be sent back to China. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want that to happen. So, so I got involved because they were using my law that I passed. And I said, no, no, this has nothing to do with attempted suicide. It doesn't have anything to do with inflicted, self-inflicted wounds. Um, you, it's wrong to charge her with something that tries to prevent her, you know, disincent, dis- so to speak, somebody from shooting a pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. You know, in a violent felony. It's a completely different yeah. set of circumstances. <clears throat> so these two Jewish ladies from New York called me and they said, um, we understand that you're involved in all this and we'd like to interview you. We're doing a documentary on Bebe Shui. And I said, sure. And a lot of guys, Jim Merritt, who you ought to interview too if you get a chance, state senator, who one of my really good friends who thinks he's going to be governor, he's never going to be governor, but he's a good guy. <laughs> and, uh, and Merritt, Jim Buck, all these guys, another guy you should interview, um, all were, would, would run for the media. You know, the, nothing the media does. Nobody with a camera can be doing have anything good up their sleeve, right? And I said, well, shut down, do it. So they interviewed me like seven times, and 
they got the documentary done. They premiered it at some film festival in New York, and they invited me to come there. And uh, it was kind of funny because it was in this um, neighborhood theater. They spread the film festival. All, all, I think it was the Tribeca Film Festival. But anyhow, um, I was there, and they introduced me, and everybody in the crowd almost everyone in the crowd, were these liberal, very feminist, very pro-women's rights, pro-choice, pro-this, pro-that, and, and Bebe Shui was their symbol for a day, right? Mm-hmm. And then they have me come up, and here I am, this, you know, button-down, conservative Republican, and they didn't, even, they didn't even know how to talk to me. It's like, this guy, Republican, was involved in helping, you know, what, they didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. hilarious. And they invited me to this reception, and I walked in, and like, like nobody knew even what to say to me. So I didn't stay very long. So I let them have, let them have their victory party. You know, mm-hmm. Anyhow, so that was, I guess, that involved kids to some degree. But after, you know, if you come up with it, I mean, just. You I got think my, it was actually, I think it was something about protecting kids online, um, on the internet from like people, like, I don't know, maybe child like predators or something like that. Well, it could have been. I was yeah. involved in a bill. Now this, so you're probably too young to remember all this, but Facebook was started by two guys from Harvard, mm-hmm. and you had to have a legitimate, valid college ID. My son was around in college when 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 uh, mm-hmm. Facebook started, so the average person couldn't get on there. Mm-hmm. But then there became a, uh, a parallel platform for young kids called MySpace. I think it was called MySpace. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it was pretty creepy. I was on the technology committee, and um, I don't exactly remember the purpose of it, but the goal was to protect. And I got on there, I did it very publicly so nobody would think I was a creep. Mm-hmm. But I said, let me show you how easy it is. And I talked to the state police and other people, and I said, let me show you how easy it is. I said, here I am, I'm whatever I was back then, 40-some years old, and obviously a white male. And I went on there, and I signed up for MySpace in front of the media, in front of everybody, and I signed up as a 14-year-old girl. Hmm. And I said, look how easy it is. We, you know, we got to do something about protecting our kids from, mm-hmm. from people you know, yeah. who have bad, bad, bad intent. And of course, you know, it's gotten worse and worse and worse <laughs> over the years. Um, and I don't even know if MySpace exists. It probably doesn't exist anymore. I, I think it, it does still exist, but it's not like, uh, I mean, it's not used much. It's just kind of there. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of like a, a living museum almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's how you know it still exists. But I was involved in that effort. I don't think I was, I don't know if I was the, I don't know if I was, I don't think I was the primary author of the bill. Yeah, I think you were just mentioned, someone mentioned you about it. Or yeah, but that was, that was on the technology yeah. committee. I was not the chairman at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I was interested in protecting kids. I mean, I had kids, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you never know what kids are doing. Yeah. Well, so why did you end up uh, leaving the Indiana General Assembly? <clears throat> well, I for two reasons. One, um, you know, I joked earlier in our conversation about, you know, it's time to leave when they start repealing laws you passed. You know, mm-hmm. so there's a finite, useful life. I had seen some of my friends, Bob Garden, Larry Borst, stellar careers in the legislature, like legendary legislators, mm-hmm. after 35, 36 years be, be pushed out. You know, 
And we always say there's three ways to leave the legislature, and two of them are bad. You get defeated or you die, right? So you, I've always been somebody, I've always believed, and I tell young people this all the time, there's very few times in your life when you can control your own destiny. And when that door opens, you have an obligation to walk through it. And um, literally it could be a handful of times in your life. I can remember those times. Like decide I was going to leave instead of stay with the Democrats, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the, those are life-changing decisions. Who you marry, another one, you know. So, so um, I I thought I had reached the point where I'd done what I could do or wanted to do, and and I was ready to leave. And Dan Burton, who was a crazy son of a bitch congressman, who I could go on for hours about him, but. He was the guy, he was the chairman of the House Oversight Committee during the Clinton impeachment. And he was convinced that, you may have to look some of this up, but Vince Foster, who was a friend of the Clintons and was, you know, I guess committed suicide in a park along the Potomac River. There were a lot of people that thought that Hillary had him knocked off because he too, knew too much about, you know, Whitewater and all the, all the Clinton corruption. And uh, so, just to show how crazy Dan Burton was, he went out in his backyard and fired a high-powered rifle into a watermelon to prove somehow that the, the splatter of the watermelon guts was similar to the brain splatter when you fire a higher-powered rifle on somebody's head. And, I mean, he was just off the charts crazy. And he was one of these guys, a lot like Todd Rikita. I call Todd Rikita the young Dan Burton because Dan Burton was a lot like him. Any issue, he would be the first one to hold the news conference, the first one out of public press, even if it was not even connected to his district or anything. He would always be one to rush to the cameras. And he was a good quote. He was crazy. So I decided, you know, I'm ready to get out of the legislature. I think I'm, I'm going to run, you know, I'm going to run against Dan Burton. And Dan Burton had already been in for 20 years. And Dan Burton was a devious, dangerous guy in a lot of ways. I mean, if you ran against him, he would have your kids followed home from school. He would, I mean, he would do anything to win. And, uh, well, what happened was, a lot of, this was in 2010, a lot of other people had the same idea. So, we had seven people in that race. Wow. Six opponents, all white males. The worst thing was, four of us had last names that began with M. So we just like, and Dan Burton wins the primary with 28% of the vote. You know, I thought, boy, that was the stupidest thing I ever did. But it, um, I learned a lot, got a lot of good, made a lot of good friends, learned a lot of life lessons, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, re- didn't regret a minute of it. And uh, then after that, I had actually had lunch with John Keeler, who now is in prison, and I said to him, John, I'm trying to think what to do next. Should I go back in the corporate world or do a client-based business? He goes, Murphy, at that time, he says, you're 52 years old. He said, um, they can fire you for wearing a purple shirt to work. I mean, there's no there's no laws in Indiana that protect you. Go in the client-based business, because then as long as you have your health, you can work until you're 80 if you want. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got into the client-based business, was listening to John Keeler. Which circles back around. I'm so disappointed that he ended up doing what he did. Because yeah. he was such a sharp guy. And he didn't need any money. But anyway, it's another story. Um, let's see. Last, I guess, few questions here then. 
Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Well, I guess there's practical and there's philosophical things. Yeah. Practical things, know the rules. One thing I was told when I went in, the guy who knows the rules the best wins, and it's absolutely true. You can use the rules to defeat your enemies because most people are too lazy to learn the rules of their own chamber. And so I became an expert on the rules. And one, at one point I was the ranking member of the rules committee, and I knew the rules backwards and forwards. And I used those all the time to win, win you know, procedural battles. Um, so know the rules. That's why one of the first things I told Craig Haggard, I helped him win his campaign. I said, I said, there's two books you need. And you need a rule book before anybody, anybody else gives it to you. Go get one. They're public record. And there's also a little, uh, it has, it's not bound, but it's got the wire mm -hmm. spine to it. Yeah. Where every year, they, every year or two, they publish a new version. And it tells you every tax, every revenue source of Indiana and where it goes to, how it gets split up. I said, you know that those two books, then you're going to be a really good legislator. So that's, that's one. But philosophically, be, you know, be your own person. Um, there's a lot worse things than being defeated. And you know, losing your reputation is the worst. Because once you lose your reputation in the state house, you're done. You can never recover. And it's the one thing everybody in life should care about, right, is their reputation. And no ambition is worth losing your reputation over. Hmm. And I think a lot of people get caught up. Uh, a lot of people ruin their marriages. A lot of people, you know, because their wife and their wives and their husbands get caught up in relationships and have affairs, and, you know, it, it really alters their life. And that's a whole other chapter of things I could talk to you about. But Jim Shelley, the guy we talked about earlier, said, that when he retired, he hasn't done it, but when he said, when I retire from reporting, I'm going to write a book, and that book is going to be about all the state house scandals. And it's, the title is going to be, Yes, But Not in the State House. Because Evan buys the first lottery office was in the state house. Mm -hmm. And the first, first lottery director's name was Jack Crawford, and he had an African-American woman working for him. I don't remember her last name. Her first name was Mary. And he asked her to sleep with him, and she said, Yes, But Not in the State House. And he, everybody fired the guy when everybody find out about it. And he's now a defense lawyer somewhere. But um, so, you know, I've known, I've known guys who've had five, six kids, and they're three hours from home, and they get caught up with a cute legislative aide, and it destroys their life. And so, you know, none of that's none of that's worth it. And there's a lot of temptation. There's temptation here. There's temptation in Washington, and this. This plays out more on the public stage because you're more public, and it's, there's those temptations probably in any industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it's it's just it's never worth it. Now, I've never understood why young women, 19, 20 years old, become infatuated with some fat old white guy in the legislature because mm -hmm. they think he's powerful. Well, come on, you know, <laughs> you're not powerful. Yeah. But that happens all the time. I've known yeah. legislators who've married their legislative aides. Wow. Okay. And some of them turn out to be successful marriages. Some of them, I know one of them was married for 20 or 30 years to his legislative aide. And um, I guess still is. Um, but I've seen a lot of heartache. And it's always the guys 
who wear their religion on their sleeve the most who are hiding something. Always. And if somebody gets too preachy at the microphone or somebody spends too much time trying to brag about how good their marriage is, then you wonder, aha, what's going on in the background? <laughs> it's a cynical <laughs> way to approach things, but it's true. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, psychologically, people, you know, tend to want to show you what they want you to see, so... Um, I always say in yeah. politics, you are what you say you are until somebody proves you differently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's really true. Yeah. And so, again, I want to get into names and things, but... Um, there's some uh, there's some legendary stories mm-hmm. which you could write a book about in fact Caitlin Lang who just left the star she's a great young lady and I talked about her earlier she was uh, she graduated from Ball State great reporter and she called me and told me that she and Ryan Martin who was on one, on one of the Pulitzer Prize winning teams for the star were leaving to join a um, a uh, new online news service and she said, it's going to be called State Affairs. I said, well, that's good. I said, I'm glad you didn't name it State House Affairs because I said you'd have too much to write about. <laughs> she got a kick out of that. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's nobody, you know, people figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it you can laugh at, but, it, you know, it destroys a lot of, mar- a lot of families. It yeah. destroys. Sure. So, we had this one guy. Oh, did you, have you interviewed Bob Alderman yet? No. you got to interview Bob Alderman. <clears throat> Grew up in a tough white neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. as an Allen County Sheriff's deputy. Greatest guy. I think he was a Marine. And every year, he's another great quote, but every year he would stand up at the State House, and he was an active sheriff's deputy. And he would, he would warn us. He would say, you know what? The FBI has been to every state, but Indiana, you know, the last time we had a big investigation was 1980 when the leadership of the Senate all went to prison. But he said, you know, we had, we had um, Bob Trott in um, Kentucky. It was a big FBI investigation in the early 90s, over late 80s maybe, and um, over racing dates, fixing of racing dates. And in Tennessee, we had an investigation called Rocky Top, you know, which I don't know what that scandal was all about. But then they took out the state Senate president of Ohio the same day. The FBI has a sense of humor. They took him out. Um, his name was Stanley Aronoff. And they arrested him the same day that the big performing arts center in Cincinnati was uh, named the Aronoff Center was being opened. And they arrested him the day that was wow. his big day. Yeah. Of course, that was time. They could have arrested yeah. him any day. And then Illinois is routinely corrupt. You know, Mitch Daniels used to always say when a governor of Illinois talks about serving, serving his second term, it's always in Terre Haute, Indiana. Oh, my gosh. And Holcomb says that when a governor of Illinois gives you his cell number, it's not his phone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so Alderman get up and say, you guys, everybody be yeah. careful. No, don't think the FBI is not here. Mm-hmm. You know? And they were. They were at, they were at most sitting at the bar listening to conversations between lobbyists and legislators. Mm. And, and, you know, John Keeler's really the first one to go down since 1980. But um, the other thing Alderman used to do, he was, he was I will say his name because he, he did miss it, but he, um, he had girlfriends, and um, he used to always say, I mean, he was so funny. He would say, I don't know why all these legislators bring their girlfriends to the state house. Um, he said, you know, they're going to get caught. He said, I keep my girlfriends at the Holiday Inn in Beach Grove. 
<laughs> just like he was. If you knew Bob Alderman, yeah. I mean, that was such a typical Bob Alderman. It was just mm. like, God, is he funny? Anyhow, if you get a chance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Bob Alderman is worth, I mean, if you had to drive before Wayne to see him, he'd be worth it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I'll definitely have he's to. Like, he's like Jeff Linder. I mean, they're yeah. just off the charts funny. And that's another thing that's happened is the legislative process has become so homogenized, the mm. personalities have gone away. Mm. Um, there was a guy, I wish he was still alive for an interview. His name was Dale Sturtz, was the LaGrange County Sheriff. Probably weighed 300 pounds, mm. maybe 350. He kept a forty-four magnum in his in his in his uh, in his desk. I mean, like the Clint Eastwood gun. Wow! And uh, it would take him like ten minutes to walk up to the front of the front of the. But he was so funny. One time, there was a guy named um, Bill Rupel who was from Manchester, and he was a farmer, and he was tired of dirt bikes kicking up dust on the dirt roads. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to make it a state law, make it illegal to pop a wheelie on a motorcycle. And he was serious. I mean, he was... So Dale Sturt walks up to the front, and Dale Sturt's one of these guys always kind of looked down over the top of his glasses, and he's a big guy. And he very slowly says, well, you have heard of evil Knievel? He said, this is stupid Knupid. And the place goes nuts laughing. And Bill Rupel stood there and cried, and cried and cried. You know, people were making fun of his bill. And and later, I was at, at uh, Dale Sturtz's house one time, and he, and he said, you know, I really felt bad that I made Bill Rupel cry. <laughs> oh, my God. I wish he were still alive. He was another, there were so many characters. But what I'm saying is there's very few characters left. Right, right. Everybody's gotten so, you know, it's just homogenized, as mm-hmm. they put it. Yeah, we used to have some funny, funny people. Interesting. Um, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, number one, I mean, the only job they have to do is the budget, yeah. right? So they have yeah. to do the budget. Um, I think, I think, number two would be public education. Trying mm-hmm. to, and, and I feel so sorry for teachers. I was on the education committee. They change the rules every two years. I don't know how any teacher, any teacher or administrator keeps up with the rules because they change constantly. They, they never, there's no long view of education. So there's no, let's try this, let's give it eight work, eight years to work. Oh, God, no. They change the rules every two or three years. Mm-hmm. And so the teachers and administrators are getting whipsawed constantly. Like, oh, we have to do this, now we have to do this, now we have to do this, now we have to do this. And they never have a chance to see if anything works, in my opinion. Um, and so I think common sense, you know, trusting, you have school boards, trusting the school boards to do what's right. I was a big opponent of, you know, no child left behind at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Even though I obviously didn't have a vote, I thought it was federal government usurping state responsibility and state and local responsibility. Um, so public education, um, but but because I'm a anti-regulation Republican, I'd say the third is allowing free markets to work, mm-hmm. um, and and that is getting out of the way of the free market. And I think the telecom deregulation bill proved that getting out of the way of the free market works in the end for everybody, um, and um, it should be. That approach should be taken more universally, I think. 
you know, when in doubt, don't pass a law. Yeah. How do you think the state of Indiana has changed over time? Oh, hugely. I mean, just, I mean, of course, it depends how far you want to go back, but mm-hmm. I talked about racism, you know. Um, we were one of the most racist states in the country for a long time. Um, there's still some towns that rightly or wrongly have that reputation. You always think of the most racist towns as being Elwood and Martinsville, right? Mm. I mean, and they'll never get rid of that reputation. Elwood was where the last lynchings, some of the last lynchings occurred, and Martinsville is where a young, this young black girl was in Martinsville selling Girl Scout cookies in a very white town and disappeared and later found dead and all that. Now, the Martinsville people say she was not killed by somebody from Martinsville. She was killed by somebody who was going through Martinsville. That's their defense. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, Ralph Foley could tell you more about that. But um, so, so it depends on how I want to go back. But since in my time in the legislature, starting with the, the Ginrich Revolution, well, first of all, you know, there were times when the Republicans controlled 70 seats earlier, right? But then Watergate flipped that. 1974 election flipped that, so all of a sudden it was heavily Democrat, and that lasted for a while. But the other big flip was in 94 during the Ginrich Revolution. And what you've seen over time, and John Gregg talked about this, I was at a dinner with him Friday night, and he said, it used to be it was very difficult to find a Republican in southern Indiana. Now it's very difficult to find a Democrat. He said, I'm like a museum piece now. I was the Democratic Speaker of the House from Sanborn, which is Knox County. And uh, it's, you go to Davies County, talk to Dave Crooks sometime. He was a legislator from Washington, Indiana, and was a good legislator, owns radio stations and things down there. And he, um, he said, you know, there's like no Democratic office holders in Davies County anymore. It used to be a core of Democratic strength was, was Davies County. So it's all the legislators along the Ohio River used to be Democrats. They're all Republicans now, for the most part. Um, and so Southern Indiana, now we always say that Democrats in Indiana are like Republicans in the East Coast. I mean, they're not really Democrats. They're not mm-hmm. really, they're not, certainly not California Democrats. Right, right. And, um, and so, but that has just become more and more prevalent over over the years. Um, rarely could we get a uh, Republican legislator from um, South Bend. You now we have Republican legislator, at least one or two from South Bend. You know, mm-hmm. we couldn't. Um, you know, we're, we've won parts of Lake County. Um, the mayor of Terre Haute for several years now, I think, has been a Republican, and that's all happened in the last thirty years. Johnson County one of the most Republican counties in the state over about a 30-year period. Now, some of it's migration in of, you know, suburbanites, right, or people becoming suburbanites. But Johnson County, for a hundred and some years, was a very Democratic county. Now it's hard to find a Democrat in Johnson County. So, but on the flip side, now you're getting some Democratic office holders in Hamlin County for the first time in many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, also, in my time in the legislature, Unigov, you know, city city government in Indianapolis was solidly Republican. Yeah. Now it's solidly Democrat. So, 
there's all kinds of reasons for that, but right. I think that's the biggest change is the change in the red versus blues, the the the, the, uh, the map mm-hmm. from red to blue has changed dramatically in the state compared to say 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Final question though: What do you want uh, the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the Indiana General Assembly? They can make a difference. One person can change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you want to run, if you want, if you want to get the <clears throat> the most impactful government is at the lowest level. So, people who run for a school board have a greater influence on their neighborhoods and the lives of the families of the people around them than anything, than legislature, than Congress, than city council, than anything. So, if you really want to have an impact, run for the school board. You also learn a lot too. Um, but I think one person can make a difference, and and we see it all the time. Um, there was a lady, um, this is during the Biden administration, who husband, there used to be a rule that county hospitals didn't have to have a doctor on duty all the time. They couldn't afford it. And she, she, my memory tells me she's from somewhere near Columbus, but her husband died of a heart attack. She got to the hospital and there was no doctor there. And so she slept on a bench in the state house for God knows how many days or weeks or whatever. Evan Bai finally had her arrested. Hmm. She was said she wasn't leaving the state house till they passed a rule or a law that said every every hospital had to have a doctor on duty twenty-four hours a day, which to me and you would be like common sense, but it wasn't right. the case in the early nineties. Yeah, um, she made a difference. You see that you see that all the time. Unfortunately, it takes a tragic individual story or mm-hmm. a, a grieving parent or somebody to come to the state house. But you know the one one story I always tell young people about about one person making a difference is has nothing to do with Indiana, but universally, my son's graduation from Vanderbilt. There was a guy there named Muhammad Yunus, and he looked like Jesus or Moses. I mean, he had the long white robe and the long beard. I guess more like Moses than Jesus. But um, he <clears throat> was from Bangladesh, and he was in a, he was getting his PhD in economics in Bangla- in uh, Vanderbilt when when the whole Bangladesh was splitting off from East Pakistan yeah. all, the, all that stuff was going on. And he was part of like a government exile. And he went back to Bangladesh and he said, he started talking to people in his old village and, and everybody was in such debt to the, the loan sharks. And it was kind of a matriarchal society, I think, at the time. And um, so he said that, you know, he went to the loan sharks and said, why, are, why, why don't you loan these people money so they can grow their rice and do their things and, and you know, without you know, 90% interest rates and things like that? He said, because they don't have any collateral. And um, he said, well, how much is the debt? And the entire village's debt was $42 American. And he took $42 out of his pocket and said, here, the village's debt's paid off. And then he decided he was going to help these people. <clears throat> he started the Grameen Bank which is legendary. And he wrote a book called Banker of the Poor, which you ought to read if you had a chance. And <clears throat> the Grameen Bank would loan women money to buy rice, I'm just searching my lack of agriculture, not rice seeds, mm-hmm. rice shoots, whatever they do. You right. know, rice. To buy materials so they could make clothes and sell them to do all the things that they could do to feed their families. <clears throat> and, he, and he did it based on their signature only. And when he spoke to my son's graduation, 
he said, I now have 6.7 million members of my bank. He said, 97% of my customers are women, and the payoff rate without any collateral is 99%. And he said, the average loan is $100. But $100 makes a difference. And he said, all I did was ask questions. And he said, I would ask questions, and then when I got an answer, that would lead to other questions, which would lead to other answers. And I kept, you know, snowballing until I came up with the Grameen Bank. And he's made a huge, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. Wow. And he said, you can do that here. One, one person, I didn't have any money, it wasn't a special person, I had $42 in my pocket, in a, in a brain. And he said, anybody can change the world. And so they actually brought the Grameen Bank here. In, well, I think in Indianapolis and in Arkansas, maybe at one point during the Clinton administration, and <clears throat> I don't think about how the Arkansas thing went, but here in Indianapolis it didn't last because what they did was they got lazy and they tried to make everybody become a Mary, literally become a Mary Kay salesman. Mm. And that was their way to lift people up, which kind of, you know, kind of bullshit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go sell Amway. You'll be rich. Yeah, right. Yeah, but so one person can make a difference, and you see it. You don't see it often, but you see it. And a lot of times, when it does happen, it never gets any publicity. Mm -hmm. But I'd say I'd say everybody, boy, girl, Democrat, Republican, because I think I mean, everybody comes there for a reason. Yep. Some of them, um, some of them are very impactful. Some of them are. I had a friend of mine, Rich McLean, who's from Logansport. He was an inventor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and the, nice, the nicest man you ever meet. And he sat there, and all he ever did was smile and push the green or red button. And uh, he he had been there 12 years. He came in the same day I did and left the same day. So he was there 16 years like I was. And he um, had never spoken at the microphone in 12 years. Never pushed any. He voted. Mm -hmm. What are the, the Republican ways, we used to say, right? And uh, one time he got up to introduce some friends that came in from out of town. And just as a joke, Bosman was the speaker. I said, Mr. Speaker, point of information. And he goes, okay, what's, what's, your, what's your point? And I said, would you please have the gentleman with the microphone introduce himself? Because he had faces one nuts laughing because he had never spoken the microphone. That's funny. Um, so there's, he didn't have much of an impact. Nice guy. Um, he was called the squeezer because he was a little inventor. And he invented these a thing to put on the end of your toothpaste hmm. tube that you just push it up. Mm -hmm. It was had these like tight rubber band kind of things that were stronger than rubber bands and two plastic bars. Yeah. And you'd pull it apart just enough to get it over the back end of your toothpaste and then you'd slowly push it up so you wouldn't waste toothpaste. And he had his name, you know, State Rep. Rich McLean. <laughs> That's funny. He had to hand them out all over the place. Yeah. His nickname in the state house was the Squeezer. Yeah, I interviewed him not too long ago actually, but I didn't know about that. He's the nicest guy. Yeah. His wife's name was Barry, and he voted a little bit moderate on education because mm -hmm. she was a teachers' union member, you know. Mm -hmm. And her dad would always finance his campaigns. He never really had to raise a lot of money or anything. Yeah. What a great guy, though. That's funny. I haven't well, seen him here. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah.